Just a heads up that this episode comes with a content warning. Like the book, it contains discussion of family and intimate partner violence, miscarriage, and suicide. I'll let you know when it's about to happen. I will go and see the world's biggest ball of string with you on our road trip. Yeah. I'm Elizabeth Flux. And I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books or short stories with a special guest. This month we're reading Shall Wear Midnight, which is I Shall Wear Midnight Without Any Eyes. <laughs> and our returning guest from nearly five years ago is author Amy Kaufman. Welcome, Amy. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still <laughs> laughing at the pun. Hi, thanks for having me back. I know. It's good to have you back. I can't believe it's been five years. Me neither. Five years. Holy moly. Yeah. How many... Now, this is not a competition with Pratchett because we all know what he was like, but mm. you've written a few books in that time. Do you know how many off the top of your head if I put you on the spot? Oh, let me think. Okay. Well, number 19 is about to come out. Um, I'm staring at my shelf because I've got reference copies. Probably eight, I think. Just a Whoa, cheeky eight books. That's pretty good. Five years? Eight books and a novella. Six of them went out into lockdowns. It was it was a good time. I've read three of them and they were really good. So thank you. Oh. I enjoyed them. Why, thank you. I try hard. But you've also, I mean, since we last spoke to you, you've started a couple of podcasts of your own. I do too. Amy Kaufman on writing, which is sort of my send the elevator back down podcast. It's the, you know, every episode's like a 10-minute masterclass on some aspect of writing craft. And uh, and Pub Dates is my much chattier one mm. that I host with Kate Armstrong. We um, It's our behind the scenes on publishing podcast. So we've spent a year following the countdown of our books to publication, and now we're going to follow them post-publication. Oh, exciting. I actually haven't listened to Pub Dates yet, but I heavily recommend your writing podcast. It's really, really good. And they're really short episodes. And every one that I've listened to, the advice is gold. So if you're into writing, get onto it. Do you know a surprising number of people use them to sleep as well? <laughs> How do you know that? Like, do they write that to you or is in that the they, official feedback? <laughs> they tell me, people tell me, oh, when you're, when I'm anxious, I listen to Amy Kaufman on writing. It's your voice is very soothing. And I get more requests than I ever anticipated would be in my life for an ASMR channel. But so far, I've um, resisted that one. Wow. Only so mm. far, though. Like, the so far is noted. I mean, look, life is long and I am young, so <laughs> who can say, Liz? Maybe you should start that podcast. You could call it The Soothings. Mm. Ah, nice segue. Well, he no. wants us to talk well, about the book. Know, that's my job, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because what a book. What a book. This is like one of the last ones I hadn't already read. Mm-hmm. I think there's only like four or five that I haven't read before. So we're running out of those precious moments. This was one of them. Wow. Oh. Every time we do a Tiffany book, I sort of forget how they get darker with everyone. 
So I was like, yeah. okay, we're in for like a, a fun but sort of dark time. And then they're like, and then the, the murderings. And I'm like, okay, all right, um, we're going to change gears for mm. how I'm going to feel reading this book. Yeah, it was grim. Well, although, as we've mm. discussed on a previous episode, I think he would go with grim, but Pratchett was very, it's not dark because things work out okay in the end. That's that's not dark. That's just fiction, <laughs> I think, was his argument. I think overall is not dark, but the journey to me certainly was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I mean- Yeah, for sure. You know, Amber might end up happily married, but that doesn't undo where she's been. Mm. Yeah, mm. no, 100%. Even the flashbacks to the, the old woman in the village, that was some of the stuff mm. that got me the most. I mean, we'll get to all of this. We'll get to it, yeah. We will, we will. But what we should do, uh, before we start, just so everyone's on the same page, so to speak, we should begin as we like to do with a reading of the blurb. And actually, Amy, you have the ASMR <laughs> uh, voice. Would you, would you like to do the honours and read the blurb? Sure the thing. It's not easy being a witch, and it's certainly not all whizzing about on broomsticks, but Tiffany Aching is doing her best. As the Witch of the Chalk, she performs the bits of witchcraft that aren't sparkly, aren't fun, don't involve any kind of wand, and that people seldom ever hear about. She does the unglamorous work of caring for the needy. But someone or something is igniting fear, spreading dark thoughts and angry murmurs against witches. Wearing a pointy hat suddenly seems a very bad idea. Aided by her tiny blue allies, the wee free men, Tiffany must find the source of this unrest and defeat the evil at its root before it takes her life. Because if Tiffany falls, the whole chalk falls with her. Whoa. I think, you know, I think that's the one from the American edition and they really ah. give you a lot of context. They do. It really kind of sets the stakes super high. Whereas mm. in the version that I've got, which I think is very similar to the one from the original hardcover, so, you know, like hardcover blurbs, they're often a bit shorter. It just, you know, says that he's after her. There's none of this stuff about if she falls, the chalk falls with her. It doesn't feel the need to heighten it quite that much. But it is. it makes it sound really epic. Mm. Where it's kind of gentle. Like, overall, it sort of unfolds gently. He takes his time in the first bit establishing exactly who she is in the community, the work she does, and the sort of the drudge of it a little bit as well, like how it's not glamorous, like it says in the blurb, but how it's necessary and what her life's like. He really doesn't rush through it. You could cram that all in quite quickly, but he kind of lets us feel it with her before he mm. kicks things off, really. Mm. It's a repeating theme during the book that, you know, this is witchcraft. This is the soul and centre, as Granny Weatherwax might say. And that this is what regular witch life is like. Because there's a bit later on where the Feagles do a bit of their magic. And she's like, some days it's cutting people's toenails and sewing up their legs. And other days it's this weird stuff. <laughs> and so I think it's nice just to have that acknowledgement that not every day and most days in a witch's life are not like what happens in the novels when there's magical weird stuff going on. Mm. Yeah, he he really sinks into it, takes his time over that drudgery and takes you to a lot of it. And, you know, we all say kind of show, don't tell, and then we all frequently break that rule as writers because actually it's often not a good idea. But, you know, in this case, he really does show. Mm. He makes you walk through it with her and it is so much more effective than if he did just tell you and you went, yeah, yeah, okay, it's not glamorous, cool. But, like, the reality is that in my head the stories about Terry Pratchett's witches are actually full of grand narrative moments. He really goes, no, no, stop, 
come down here with me. It's dirty down here. It's dark. Yeah. And there's always an element of that in the Tiffany books, I think, like because she's learning and she's being shown the craft, like particularly in the second and third ones, there's a lot of her going with the other witches to do the rounds and, and helping people out and learning what that means. Um, and here she's just doing it. She is a witch now. She's yeah. she's on her own in the chalk. And this is where we find her at the start in the first chapter because, uh, listener, if you've not listened to any of the other uh, younger readers or young adult, and we'll get back to the distinction between those two, I mm. think, later on. But if you've not listened to any of our episodes about his books like that before, he does use chapters in this book. And in the first chapter, we find Tiffany at the local fair for the scouring, which is when they have a they have a big fate, you know, like a, a festival, because this is the annual cleaning of the giant, uh, one of the big chalk carvings <laughs> in the ground of the chalk. We've heard a lot about the horse, the other one, and we have heard about the giant briefly before. And it's not just that he's giant- in stature, mm-hmm. it's his also giant in certain other proportions that make it very clear um, what gender this giant is supposed to be. Um, so, uh, yeah, I thought that a lot of that talk uh, with this sort of embarrassment and a lot of the puns and, and nonsense. It also, I think, sets the tone really early on that this is an older Tiffany. Like, there's a lot of mm. a lot of dick jokes yeah. <laughs> you know, at the start. Subtle yeah. dick jokes. And a shout out to the little pictures at the beginning of each chapter as well, where um, the first thing you see is the giant with the bit in question obscured behind someone's head. So you can't quite see it. You know. <laughs> I think it's just oh, a- yeah. 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 If you know, you know. <laughs> and if you saw it, you'd know for sure. And yeah. this is this is a bit of a day as usual for her. Although, as we later find out, it's been very busy before we join her at the start of the story. But she's now having a bit of a restful moment wandering around the fair. She gets interrogated by two young girls who ask her about her passionate parts. Again, very quickly setting the tone. <laughs> she's older now. <laughs> yeah, but also, like, she's clearly, like, the people have been talking about her because what's not really fully acknowledged to later on, but it's clear everyone thought that she was, she and Roland were going to be a thing and he has gotten engaged and everyone knows about it. And so they're sort of treating her as though she's been spurned. Mm. And I couldn't really get a sense of if she feels spurned through the whole book, but everyone's treating her kind of like she has been. And that's the tone throughout this first chapter for me with these girls and then later with the Kelda and everyone. Yeah. I was wondering about this. I, I felt a bit confused about this for a little while, but I think you've actually just sorted it out for me because during this chapter when Rob Anybody, Chief of the Feagles, talks to her and passes on a message from the Kelda who hasn't seen Tiffany for two weeks, he passes on the message that, you know, there's more fish in the sea, which makes it seem like they've recently called off whatever their arrangement was. But I think you're right in that it's actually, it's happened sometime earlier, but what's happened now is everybody knows that there's no arrangement there anymore because he's got engaged to someone else, which does seem to have been quite recent. I think it's like everyone was shipping them and then he's engaged to someone else. They're like, well, it's not happening. And Did we ship them though, honestly? No, I, d- I did not. I warmed to Roland, but I did not want her to go off and marry the first <laughs> guy she met just because narratively that's convenient. Sometimes that's great, like in a book, like that can work out really well. But in this case, I didn't feel it was right for her. So even so, I kind of got caught up in all the all the people being like, oh, you were right for him, blah, blah. And I got caught up in the Letitia hate that he cleverly sure. sort of moves away. But yeah, mm. I think mm. for me, watching her walk through the market felt very much like a stepping over the threshold kind of moment. 
that this is a very mm. different Tiffany to the one that we have known, you know, even in Wintersmith, that, you know, we saw her, you know, with Miss Treason and with her first teacher. Miss Level. Miss Level, thank you. You know, we saw her being like, what, what do you mean cutting toenails? We saw her revolting against it and rebelling and resisting and other things that begin with R, I guess, but ah, railing against it. And now we see her doing it in this everyday kind of way. You know, we see girls curtsying to her. We see she's the witch. You know, later when she, she talks to her dad in the barn and she explains to him why she cuts toenails and wipes for them as can't twist and all the rest of it. This is a grown up Tiffany now. She's going to cross more thresholds during the book, but I felt like there were a series of scenes at the start, you know, her walking through the market, her talking to the dad, her, her talking to her baron, you know, all of which were designed to show the new kind of role that she now occupies to show us that she's different. Did you feel a little bit that at the beginning of the book, at least, who she was had kind of been pushed to the edges. She was her role, but her yeah. authentic self wasn't as present. Like it kind of felt like she was weary, but I didn't feel like she was the same character in the sense that she was gone. She's she's just the job. But later on, it felt like bits of her came yeah, back. Yeah, I was, I mean, when I was writing my notes, I wrote, she's alone in a crowd, the hat sets her apart. And it made me think of, you know, the, the moment in, Wintersmith, where she goes back to check on Anagramma at the end, and she's not wearing her hat, and someone who she had, you know, a woman she'd dealt with for years, or months, I suppose it must have been, you know, didn't even recognize her without the hat. The, mm. I mean, I feel like, you know, it's a book about, essentially, she's gone way too deep into the role and forgotten who she is, and then we're going to see her climb out of that. Yeah. She feels like she's on her own, mm. having to deal with things, which is a very teenage, like, feeling right like yeah. she's uh 15 16 in this book uh or nearly seven is it she's nearly 16 or nearly 17 she's nearly, nearly 16, 16. That's, nearly 16. Uh, and by the by the end of the book there's an epilogue where a year has passed so she's you know nearly 17 by the end of the book but she that's such a, a teenage experience to feel like no one understands you no one no one can deal with your problems but also um, I thought it was an interesting juxtaposition because even granny weatherwax in all nearly all of her books I mean even in equal rights in some ways, doesn't deal with things alone. No. Like, she's always getting help from somebody or enlisting someone, even if she's, like, basically bossing them around <laughs> to do it. Uh, and in most of her books, she's there with Danny Og, at least, and usually another witch as well. And here, you know, there are no other witches on the chalk or anywhere nearby. All the other witches are quite far away. So she is alone in that sense. But by the end, there's this sort of change in how the place is going to operate, partly at her hand, but also because of, as we'll get to in the next couple of chapters, decisions that her parents make to sort of step up a bit more, which I thought was really great. Like people seeing her and going, you can't do this all by yourself and you shouldn't either. Yeah. The first chapter is mostly good fun, including Horace the Cheese um, (laughs) going in the cheese rolling. Very traditional (laughs) English fair pastime, Uh, causing a fight, of course. Uh, like any good Fiegel would. That was great. Mm-hmm. And then right at the end of that, when she's sort of sorting out the injuries of the people hurt in the uh, Horace Cheese <laughs> incited fight. Uh, but at the end of that, that's when Roland shows up. He hasn't mm. been at the fair. He's clearly distracted. He's in a carriage with his fiance, mm. Letitia, who Tiffany has some very mean thoughts about, not for the last time in this book. And we're very, I agree with you, Liz. Like I was quite sympathetic to these thoughts at the start. 
But at the same time, I was like, but yeah, I didn't want them to get together. So I'm happy about this. I think because I'd forgotten a few of the things that had happened that made it even more significant, which we get reminded of later in the book. We, Not that we get much of an impression of her at the start, except that Tiffany doesn't like her and pretends not to remember her name. Classic Mean Girls stuff, really. <laughs> yeah. She, I mean, she does not cover herself in glory at all stages during this. No, no. No. I mean, I to, to Precious' credit, she becomes a much more interesting and fleshed out character as the book goes on when we finally meet her properly. But still, she has made some bad choices, that is for sure. Yeah, plus it, it does feel like when you, you're seeing Roland, who you've gotten used to being like an ally, it feels, and it's not really the case that Letitia is pulling him back out of the world of the, the regular people and back into like fancy pants world where she's like, don't get out of the carriage or we really need to get home sort of thing. And it feels like she's the one causing that, which isn't necessarily fair. But when we first meet her, she's associated with that change. And that's part of why I didn't warm to her at all. Yeah. Plus our protagonist hates her. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a real angle with him that he's not doing the job the same way his dad did either, as we find out when we meet the Baron in a bit. But he's kind of a bit more distant and a bit more in the paperwork. But I I think there's an element of that. I mean, there is an element of that that's supernatural, as we'll get to in this Mm. part of the story. But it also seems like the fact that he's had to take on so much responsibility at such a young age because he's been basically running the barony since- you know, a few years earlier when he was, you know, uh, not much older than Tiffany. So, he's, you know, he was 15 or something when he started doing this. But he hasn't quite developed the knack for talking to people and going out amongst them. And he doesn't seem to have that naturally the way that the old Baron did or learned. Yeah. I think back to old Roland stuck in the tower, sort of quote unquote under siege from his aunts, you know, writing letters to Tiffany that are full of absolute nothing. And, you know, you think, well, gosh, no wonder you're not great at people. Sort of checks Mm. out. (laughs) Yeah. Was it Letitia that he was writing to? Like, remember she found out he was writing to someone? That was somebody else. That was Iodine. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Jeez. They were comparing that they had similar experiences and that they could only do watercolours and they were- And I guess it makes a comment on, like, women in that class were only very restricted to what their interests could be. So, that sort of sets up Letitia's character later on of, like, why she- is feeling suppressed. But I find it interesting that kind of Roland and Tiffany have parallel stories in a way that they're both sort of being, their personalities are being shoehorned away because they both have these huge roles that they have to fill that have been forced on them and they don't really have any choice. So at this stage in their lives, they're both just the roles and putting themselves aside. Yeah. It's nice that it's happening at the same time for them. But Yeah. That first chapter is kind of very nice and country it'll kind of, thing going on and then we get to chapter two and i feel mm. like the, the only thing this book has actually that's not true it's got two things in common with a brief history of time one is that i feel like chapter two is probably the toughest chapter to get through but also there's a sort of a stephen hawking influence which we'll come back to but chapter two is the one where things get real mm. Mm. we're about to start our main discussion of those heavy topics if that's something you'd like to skip for now Head to 30 minutes and five seconds. I'll see you there. Tiffany goes out to do a part of the job that is pretty rough. And indeed, rough is the word because this chapter is called Rough Music. And it's the concept of, you know, that sort of mob justice where word gets around that someone has done something awful. And the mob's like, we've got to do something about this. And without anybody saying anything, they just kind of get into a group and they're heading towards the house of Mr. Seth Petty who word has got out, has beaten his 13-year-old pregnant daughter so badly that she has lost the baby. 
and this is harsh. This is this is this is uh, this is rough stuff. And it's well written, but he just throws you straight in the middle of it. There's almost whiplash. You go from the the fair to she's hauling him up or down the stairs, and we're just in the middle of it. There's no segue. You, everything is sort of through remembering flashbacks of how she got to there. Yeah, and it's. I mean, there's a yeah. lot to unpack, right? Like this girl is 13 for a start. Which, you know, we can get into like, ah, oh, it's the country they start earlier, but she's still 13 years old. And, you mm. know, which, which is something that's actually never addressed in the text at all. No one, including Tiffany, ever really thinks, oh my God, 13. Uh, you know, we, we see her a year later in the epilogue and she's married and that's fine too. So I, I bounced a little off that. Yeah. I was surprised to find that in the book. Mm. I think it's one of those times where Pratchett's fairly loose attitude to what kind of historical allegory he's writing here, like when we are supposed to correlate the time on the Discworld to the time in our own history, it's always been very loose. Like it started out, it was sort of your standard magical medieval Europe, but then it became very clear this was not meant to be the medieval period. It was maybe a bit more Renaissance. By this stage, late in the books, it's nearly the Industrial Revolution kind of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, and certainly a lot of the stuff that happens in the books, a lot of the attitudes feel like they're much more modern and more recent. And then, yeah, something like this happens where nobody seems to be blinking an eye that a 13-year-old is pregnant to another 13-year-old, it should be said. But, yeah, it's weird, too, because I think some people might go, oh, yeah, you know, it's the country. It's like, yeah, in the country, kids know more about this kind of stuff. Like, there's, <laughs> it's, it's not a coincidence that Letitia, the noble person, is the one who has to be sat down and explained the facts of life. <laughs> By Tiffany, who and Nanny Ock, and Nanny Ock, <laughs> oh, um, but imagine. Tiffany, you know, claims not to be an expert, and yet, you know, a footnote says, "No, she is. It's just not from personal experience." And you're like, "Yeah, because she grew up on a farm. She knows how this stuff works, at least in a you know basic kind of biological sense." So yeah, it's. I agree. It's a. It is a bit of a, a weird confronting thing, and and yeah, no one ever comments really on her age, except for that one conversation she has with Mister Petty where he's talking about how she's too young and Tiffany says something to the effect of, oh, she's too young for a bit of romance, I think is the phrase she uses, but she's not too young to be beaten so hard she's, you know, on the ground and she's lost her baby to sort of like really just sort of tell him that don't start that argument. No, I mean, no, legs to stand on. no high ground for you, no. Like mm. he, he says to her at one point, it was the drink what done it, and she says, but you drank the drink. Like yeah. she's, she's not giving him an inch. It was, it was just one of those places I sort of, mm. I thought, you know, would this have been any different if she was 16? I don't think that it would have, mm. you know, a, no. I mean, apart, apart from it being the horror of him beating a child, but yeah, that it was, it's, it's not often I snag, but that was, that was, a, that was one spot where I thought, oh, I just don't know that that was. I feel like maybe he wanted Tiffany to be older than her. And that's possibly the only reason why. She had to be 13 rather than 15 or 16. Cause I think storyline wise, I agree. Like nothing else would have been different. It would have still been horrifying if she'd been 16. Yeah. He's trying to do a couple of things with the character as well. Like she's also meant to have a, a more childlike innocence, which we sort of comes in with her storyline with the Feagles as the book progresses and people thinking that she's a bit simple. And maybe he had an original version where she was a bit older. But then if you're talking about someone a bit older and calling them simple, that's got a whole other set of connotations that's kind of equally horrifying or, or possibly even worse in terms of, you know, what happens to her. So it's, yeah, I don't know. It's it's rough. It is one aspect of a whole situation. 
Yeah. 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 On the other hand, it's going to be rough anyway. Nothing is good here. No. No. And look, I think there is a question to be asked. Is it worse if they're three years younger? You know, like if they were 16, would it be, would it be any better? As you say, no, not really. But we feel worse about it, certainly. Yeah. Look, it's just awful. <laughs> but yeah. it's meant to be. It's meant to be uncomfortable. And it is, I mean, it's a very, it's an interesting way to write about discussions of, you know, family violence in that we've got a very, I don't want to say over the top, but you've got a very blatant, full on, it's not like something that happened behind closed doors that someone can deny happened or someone can pretend doesn't happen because they're scared. Like there's no, will they get caught or will anyone even notice about this? So it's not very subtle. And there are bits in the book where they talk about the fact that this stuff does go on behind closed doors where it is more subtle and maybe people don't do anything about it. And there's, you know, this is one of the ways in which Tiffany's dad in particular is like, we need to keep a bit more of an eye on this sort of thing and get more organized. But, you know, when you think about the audience for this book, I think that's the other thing that makes you sort of go, mm. I mean, I think these themes, you, you, it's appropriate to write about this in a book for teenagers. It's stuff that a lot of teenagers have in their lives in one way or another, but it's pretty brutal. Yeah. I did think there's, there's a moment when, you know, she's trying to save his life from the, uh, the mob. And, you know, a part of me was thinking, why are you trying so hard to defend this guy? And then she says, she's not trying to save his life for him. She is trying to save them from becoming murderers. And that felt like it almost Mm. took me straight back into Pratchett. Like that's such a, that habit he has of taking the way you see something and then just giving it a twist and suddenly you're seeing it from a different angle. I felt very much like I, I kind of bounced back in when she said that. And I was like, oh, yes, do do that. Especially yeah. since she has seen, did she, did she see firsthand what happened to the old woman and the cat or did she just see the aftermath? She wasn't there. She just knew about it at the time. I mean, yeah, she buries the cat. Yeah. If she's not there, she must come back later because- she buried the cat and then the old woman outlived her cat by some time and died that winter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they destroyed her house and killed her cat and left her kind of out in the cold begging and then that ended exactly the way everyone knew it would. I think it was one of the darkest things I'd ever read in a Bratcher book. Yeah. I tried to think if I had read something worse and that was one of the ones that ruminated in my mind in the days after reading that for the first time and I was like, we're seeing that in flashback, which gives us a little bit of a remove. If we'd had to see that unfold in real time, if that makes sense, it would, would have, I think, felt a lot worse and it already felt really bad. So I think that was well handled by him. But even then, it was, I think, the darkest thing I've ever read in one of his books. Yeah, for, for quote-unquote young readers, he goes a lot of dark places. Yeah. And normally I'm fully on board with that. Like in The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents, there's some pretty tense stuff, particularly when you look at that book and consider it's more obviously written for like a middle grade kind of audience, Mm. maybe an older middle grade audience, but it's still pitched there. But it deals with some pretty adult ideas about death and um, evil. But then here, you know, this this is something a bit more concrete, something that could be in someone's real life as well, you know, as opposed to the kind of, weird magical evil that's in The Amazing Maurice. So, yeah, it is pretty rough. I think he deals with it mostly well. I think the the real question mark about it is, why is it here? And I think it, it, it serves a few narrative purposes, but you could argue that you could have done something else to sort of ground Tiffany in the worst parts of her job. Yeah. 
I think we just, we see so much of her job. I mean, now you say that, it makes me think, you know, the writer in me thinks if we just lifted Amber right out of this story, she acts in a couple of ways to move the plot along in that, you know, she helps create a tension between the, the Fiegels and the people and a tension between what Tiffany thinks is the best way of doing her job and what those around her think is the best way of doing her job. But I still, I reckon I could lift her out and it wouldn't change much, which I hadn't thought about before, but mm. yeah. I agree with that. I think you could lift Amber out and it wouldn't harm the narrative very much or at all, really. But I think this chapter um, to me was about showing how bad the mob can get or how far they'll go because then when the man with no eyes comes in and his whole thing is like drumming up the worst instincts in people spreading discord you have the sort of in the back of your mind this is what this village is already capable of the people in her life are already like going to go march on this man and some of those people would have been the people who drove that old woman out of Mm -hmm. her home oh yeah absolutely so this chapter to me made the stakes a bit higher because you saw what they'd do without that influence. Hmm. So if you had that there, it could just be sparked off. Yeah. Don't need Amber for that, but you need a catalyzing incident to show what that there is a mob and a potential for this kind of thing. Yeah. And maybe the flashback for the old woman would have been enough. Yeah. Often in a Pratchett book, you know, there's bits of the plot that you're like, is this really essential to the plot? And often it's not. <laughs> and usually you're like, but I had fun and it was good. And when you read yeah. about his method of of writing and plotting where he kind of knows where he wants to end up, but doesn't really know where he's going to go along the way and just kind of sort of finds his way and then cleans it up later, which was well documented as his style. It kind of makes sense. You can see how he got there, but this is such a big thing. I would love to know the story of why he decided that this was something he wanted to put in the book. I mean, I can see maybe he's, he wanted to talk about it and it didn't really fit into any of the other books. I mean, you could write something like this in a watch book, but you'd have to handle it very, very differently because of the setting and the characters involved. But it's... Yeah, so it's, I, I, I don't know. But it, it happens. We won't dwell on it because there's a lot of other book to talk about. <laughs> so much book. And we'll have some questions about it. So we'll come back to it, I'm sure. The next thing it does, though, is it spawns another of the threshold moments that I kept noticing. So, you know, we see her walk through the market and she's treated completely differently. That's a threshold moment. Now, after mm. all of this, she sits down with her dad and they talk as equals. She's not talking to him as his child, which she has done in previous books. She's very much talking to him as another adult, and she's explaining things to him. And, you know, that is then followed by her taking Amber to Jeannie and the Fiegels, and her relationship with Jeannie has changed, and Jeannie has grown up, and the two of them have stepped over a threshold together. And, you know, it's almost like she's doing the rounds of all her previous relationships because, you know, she'll then talk to the Baron again and, you know... Mm. We, we see her almost visit each of these people in turn and have this different conversation. But the first one is with her dad where she's explaining things to him, which isn't how it used to be. And yeah. he's, you know, giving us one of our themes of worrying about her doing it all by herself. Yeah, I'm worrying that he and the sort of the village isn't doing enough. Like I think it's a later conversation where he says, your mum and I have been talking and we're going to talk to the other people in the village. There's some stuff a village has got to do. You can't do everything. And I think someone else actually says to her, and you shouldn't let other people think that you can do everything either. Or maybe he does say that, but that's a later conversation. But you can see the seeds of that here. But yeah, she takes Amber up to the Fiegel Mound. They put the soothings on her, which is something we haven't heard about since their very first appearance in Kappa Yugulum, where they cure King Verence uh, of his vampiric influence. Um, So it's nice to see 
that uh, there's still a through line there, even though they've changed quite a lot uh, between their original appearance and the Tiffany books. Oh, and thank you for the Feagles, because like, it's <laughs> just good to have a break and enjoy yeah. something in this book and something that's consistent. Like They haven't grown. Like They've got a really good Kelda who's teaching them stuff in there, but they're just doing their capers in, in different funnel directions. They're still the same. Yeah. That's a relief. It was. Even they get their darkest moment in this book, you know? Like when, when the mound is threatened later in the book, Rob anybody is like, I will burn this place to the ground. <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah. he means it too. Like, so, yeah, but largely I agree. They, they're mostly pretty much the same. Snail hustling. Amazing. <laughs> snail farming was delightful. <laughs> I like, they talk about eating the snails. They're like, well, they taste always like, well, the best thing about them is if you put enough garlic with them, they taste like garlic. <laughs> garlic. I'm uh, Yeah. Mm. Um, she gets some sleep at the Fiegel Mound, having disclosed that she hasn't really slept for properly for a while. She goes back to the farm to bury Amber's child. I mean, this is, I mean, again, you know, yeah. like, it's not just the, the first thing. It's not just, here's this awful thing that happened. It's like, here's many of the consequences because she goes back there and she finds her dad has returned and is trying to hang himself. So she saves him. And feels Amber's dad just to bad about it. Up. Yeah, Amber's dad just to yeah, <laughs> sure. not Mister Aching. Twist. <laughs> and it's full on. It's full. It just doesn't. And the, mm. but there's a bit later in the book where she's not talking about this, but she says, you know, when does it ever end? Like you make one mistake and then you think you do one thing to make up for it, but then something else happens and something else happens and it just keeps going. And she's talking about when she did the dance and upset the wintersmith, and then this is a consequence of that. And what else is going to be a consequence of that? But also, you know, this whole book is about ripples and the things that happen mm. as because of one choice or one action. So it's, yeah, it's, I mean, a lot of Pratchett books have that as a theme, but I think that's pretty strong in this one. Mm. Uh, but she deals with that and buries the child next to the unmarked grave of the witch in the woods. And I love the detail that people talk about why does such beautiful flowers grow where she died? And Tiffany's like, mm. I don't wonder that because I found those flowers and I planted them there. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, she went she, far to get them. Right. She saved up and yeah. mail ordered them, I think. Brilliant bit of headology yeah. witchcraft there. I, I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, enjoyed might be the wrong word, but I, I thought it was great. <laughs> yes. Appreciated. Yes. Yeah. Appreciated. That's, yes. And that's the first time where she feels something watching her, but she can't see what it is. And in fact, I think the phrase that she uses is she feels something feels wrong, but all her senses told her no one was there except Tiffany aching, but it didn't feel right. And I just want to say there's a lot of things in the first few chapters where things are dropped very briefly, like often it's like one sentence mention of things that then become very important later on and usually right near the end of the book. And it yeah. feels like when I was going back and sort of looking through it again to make notes, I was like, Pratchett, that's a very long time between shelving and callback. Like, I don't know if people are going to pick up on that. And when I was reading it the first time, there were a few things at the end of the book. I'm like, where did that come from? That feels like it came out of nowhere. And then I looked back at the start and I'm like, oh, no, you did mention this in one sentence in chapter one. <laughs> there was a lot of stuff like that. Yeah, this is my reader on the bus theory. I'm always talking to my co-writer, Megan Spooner, on, about this. And uh -huh. she's she's very Team Pratchett, she would say herself. She's drop it once, have faith in the reader. And I'm very, your reader is reading this on the bus on their commute and they get two chapters a day and it takes them a month to read the book. You gotta, you know, you gotta 
keep going. And someone showed me a review of one of my books recently that said something like, every so often they remind you of what's going on and it is alternately extremely convenient and very annoying. And I'm like, well, just depends, <laughs> depends where you got to on the bus that day as to which the answer is, my friend. <laughs> like, Oh, it's such a difficult thing to gauge, you know, yeah. like you do want to trust your audience. Like that is a huge thing in any kind of storytelling, but also you've got to give them the materials to use. Like I, I read yeah. this within a month and making a lot of notes. In fact, I think it took me probably about two or three weeks because I read quite slowly when I'm making notes. And I still, there were things that I was like, I'm not entirely surprised by this, but I don't know where it came from. And then when I looked back, I was like, oh, like one of the things they dropped really early on is when she's talking about Nanny Og uh, knowing all of the old witchcraft stuff, including like how to, you know, marry people. And she mentions that people used to get married by jumping over a fire. And it's like one sentence. Oh, does she? And then that becomes incredibly important at the end. And I forgot about that, you know, and it doesn't really matter but it is there, but it's not, it's not called out. And I think it's, that's it. Again, that's a balancing act. Like you, you want to put the seed in people's minds and then pick it up. And I think Pratchett is a genius for doing it for comedy purposes where, and, and this is why I use the phrases um, shelving and a callback. These are the, sort of the comedy terms for doing that. And you have to, when you're doing it for comedy, you have to do it just long enough ago that people remember it, but not so recently that they are expecting it. Like they need to have forgotten it, but then when you, say it again, they go, oh, like that thing you said 20 minutes ago that I now remember. And I think in this one, it's so far in the past by the time you get to the end of the book. And so many like huge things have happened. Yeah, we've been busy. You forget a lot of those little set up moments. But it's like you can have a little hint as a treat. You don't need to, to have, <laughs> have, have memory of it for, to understand the rest of it. It's kind of like, I feel like it's just like a, it's like a treat for if you remember great. If you don't, that's fine. I did have a dark thought that um, this is this is a light dark thought, not a not a dark heavy subject matter thought. Not chapter two, like, <laughs> not a chapter two, not a chapter thought. two dark thought. But I did have the thought that is this why people are always talking about how Pratchett really rewards you on a reread? Is it just that he drops all these hints that are too subtle for you to remember, and then you read it again and go, oh, how clever? And you're like, yeah, maybe that's his technique for getting people to <laughs> enjoy his back. books on a reread. I don't know. I feel like he's having a nice time, and it's like, yeah. Mm. But she senses mm -hmm. this presence and doesn't know what it is after she buries the baby and then heads back to see how Amber's doing and takes her back to her family farm where she has another conversation with her dad about how they're going to try and keep an eye on things. And then it's time to go see the Baron. We've got to mention the chickens, though. Oh, yeah. That's one of those little <laughs> the first <laughs> signs of Amber's <laughs> weirdness where she just gets yeah. the chickens following her around like a parade ground. Mm. Yeah. What, what is going on with that? Like, it doesn't really, like, I enjoyed her. I thought she was great, but it doesn't really go anywhere in this book. And look, we haven't read The Shepherd's Crown. So, listener, mm. if you are, like, right now screaming at us through your headphones going, but the thing that happens in The Shepherd's Crown, we don't know if anything happens mm -hmm. with Amber in The Shepherd's Crown. But, yeah, what what is going on there? <laughs> in terms of, like, her individually or in terms of bigger story? I think both, you know, like, I mean, I, well, I mean, we, she's mysterious and magical but we don't really get to the bottom of it in this book. We don't know what her deal is because we later on find out she also has this magical gift for languages where she can understand even the ancient fegal language, the mother of tongues, uh, and also the, the language of toads, apparently. But we never find out where that comes from. I did have a slight thought maybe she's related to Rincewind because he had a mysterious talent for languages too. But, yeah, I don't know. Why is this plot line in the book, I guess, is what I'm asking. 
Yeah, because I certainly took her to be speaking the language of chickens here, that that's how she's yeah, executing this. Mm, that makes sense. The languages. She's, you know, clucking mm-hmm. at them. But why? Yeah, that's a bigger question. Don't know. I, it felt like set up for a story. Yeah. Whether that story comes later, I do not know. But yeah, it certainly feels like. Which is, it's interesting because I found an interview and I think there's a couple of others where he said the same thing. But when he was writing I Shall Wear Midnight, he was thinking about this as the last Tiffany Aching book. Mm. He said it several times in, in one of the interviews that I read. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. Like, you know, he's written four of them. He doesn't know how many more books he's going to write at that stage or about what. So, at the time he was writing it, he wasn't intending to follow it up in another book. Unless he was going to write, you know, like a new for younger readers book about Amber's adventures. But then Amber's got this backstory that you're like, that's maybe too much for younger readers. I don't know. I was sort of, I mean, if I, you know, if you were to say, Amy, you can do whatever you want with Amber, it'd be she'd show up in some future book set in Ankh-Morpork Pork and she'd be part of some squad. And she'd be older and she'd have a nice tailor husband and, you know, she'd be working, I don't know, as a diplomat or translating at the Discworld UN or something, you know, and she'd be fearsomely intelligent and, and sort of brokering world peace. You don't think she's going to become a witch? I'm, who's to say a witch can't do that? Well, that's, that's a good question. I thought the setup was not so much that she's a witch, but that she's something else that's more like specifically the chalk, like, cause Jeannie was saying she's the closest thing to a Kelder that you can get as a human. So I'm not sure if it was something to do with specifically like some sort of lineage cross in the past, which physically does not make sense. But yeah, I thought it was a chalk specific thing that didn't mean she was a witch as some other sort of supernatural thing. She does have mysterious parentage. I mean, they talk about that. It's not clear mm. who her father she's, is. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. We'll come back to her storyline, I think. But it's it certainly doesn't go to any definite conclusion here. I mean, I got the impression she is meant to be sort of this idea that there will be more witches on the chalk eventually. And this is the start of that process. Like, she's found a young girl who has magical talent. And so, Tiffany will not be alone as a witch on the chalk forever. And then there's what happens with Letitia later on as well, although that's that's a bit of a different question and we'll we'll get to that. But for me, that was kind of where it was going. But it, again, it wasn't that clear cut apart from things like the Kelda says she's a treasure not to be thrown away, which I'm like, she's a person. You don't throw away people anyway. Like what? <laughs> that's a weird thing to say. But what she means, I think, is there's something special about her that needs to be nurtured. And she kind of says that in as many words. So it's. But look, we'll come back to her. We should get onto the Baron because this scene at the end of chapter four is, oh, wow. I mean, yeah. first of all, it's great to have some closure for some of the stuff with the Baron and, and Roland. And we find out that the Baron has been told by Mr. Aking about what Tiffany did. Because if we remember after she saved him from the land of the fairies, no one believed that's what happened. They all figured he saved her mm-hmm. uh, and escaped because that's what they want to believe, the local noble save to the local young girl. But he knows that's not the truth. And so he wants to reward her for that. She's like, I don't take payment, I'm a witch. And he said, but you did this before you were a witch. Loophole. Mm-hmm. And the Baron, wow, he really comes across great in this scene. I love him yeah. so much. Yeah, more Baron. There's Well, there's no more Baron, but I think- <laughs> I want more Baron. <laughs> he, uh, he gets, I think, what Pratchett was thinking about very much like a perfect death. And this is- he, he talks about this in the um, Dimbleby lecture that he gives, Shaking Hands with Death, that when his own father, Pratchett's father, was dying, there was a day when he suddenly became very happy and he was having a very clear memory of his time in India as a young man during the war. 
when he said, I can feel the, the sun of India on my face. And he says in the lecture, if there'd been any justice or sense of narrative purpose in the world, he would have died then, but he didn't. And I think he mentions in one version of the speech or in a note somewhere that this was him using that and to write, like, this is how I imagine my father should have died. This would have been a good death. And even death, when he's there, says, how appropriate. <laughs> um, <laughs> which seems like a slightly inappropriate thing to say, to be honest. But it is a beautiful- oh, Not if you're death. Well, no, that's true. <laughs> no, that's beautiful that he gave his dad, you know, what he wished he had had. Mm. I love it because, you know, we know who the Baron used to be and we've seen in previous books, we've seen Granny Aching humbling him and teaching him, you know, not to be a dick. Now he says to Tiffany, I, I wrote it down, he said, you are your own person. And she says, just now I feel as though I belong to everybody, uh, which yeah. is as clear a statement of theme as you could possibly <laughs> ask for. But, you know, he says it to her clearly at the start and she's not ready to... Here, I mean, she said she agrees with him that, that she, you know, it would be great if she was acting more like her own person, but she sees no way to solve the problem. And so she doesn't try. Yeah. Not yet. Yeah. She feels trapped, I think, a bit. She never expresses it that way, but she does say there's one point where she's sort of talking to herself about what needs to be done. And she says, you know, that's what we do. And then she goes, except there isn't any us. It's just me. I really wish it wasn't just me. And she's clearly wishing that, you know, she had a little coven of witches who would share the work. Because it's such a big, and it, and it is like when you look at the other kind of steadings that the witches have up in the ram tops, the chalk is huge. It's at least yeah. geographically huge. Like it's traditional, you know, English countryside farmland. It's a bit like, you know, one of the places I grew up where, you know, there's, te- there's 3000 people technically live in the town, but most of them are on farmsteads, like way away from the town center. And in Lanka, it's not like that. You know, they're up in the mountainous regions. Everyone, if you've got a farm, it's like in your backyard. Uh, and you mm. might live away from someone, but not that far away because there's all these woods and mountains and stuff. So it feels like a much bigger place. And also there's no witch next door, you know, who can come and take over for you when you need a rest or if you've got a gammy leg or something, you know, like you, mm. she's stuck and it's, it is rough, but the Baron does at least recognize that. And also the other thing that this conversation did for me was really hammer home how long ago Granny Aching kicked him in the ass, as he puts it, because those are all flashbacks when we see that in the previous books. And it's clear that that had an effect because everybody remembers him very fondly by this stage, even her parents who have an argument about whether or not, you know, having a baron is good for you or not. Um, and, and she has a little epiphany about, you know, sort of the, the power dynamics there later in the book as well. But everyone sort of remembers that he's actually very kind and treats people very well and he's friendly and nice to people, largely because uh, Granny Aching made sure of it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great. He's sort of in a position, isn't he, to be the one to say to Tiffany, you're your own person, you don't belong to everybody all the time because he's mm. the only, she's the only witch, he's the only baron, you know. He's one of the only other people on the chalk who's actually kind of unique like she is. Mm. And Roland also, you know, this is a theme that we get into about why they felt drawn to each other is they both felt that position of being apart from everyone else. Several times they put it as, you know, we thought because we were different to everyone else that we were the same, but that's not how that works, which is such a great way to put that. You know, like I've felt that in my life. I know a lot of people have, and it's just, yeah, I thought that was great. 
Yeah. But they're also setting it up nicely that Roland and Tiffany could have a similar dynamic to Granny Aching and the Baron. Mm, yeah. Especially now that they're fully putting the kibosh on the, the romance aspect of it, which good. But they're showing yes. that their relationship is still important in a different way. Yeah. But this um this beautiful scene is not without consequence because the Baron, one of the other things that happens during their conversation Oof. is the Baron's like, I'd love to see some witchcraft. And she's like, yeah, let me show you this thing where I stick my hand in the fire and I heat up this poker and then I stick it in a bucket of water and it boils the water away. Um, yeah. And that means that just That's as great. he's sort of having his epiphany moment and, and this beautiful memory of walking out of the burning of the stubbies, which is where they burn off the remains of the corn um, at the end of the harvest time. Um, Again, a nice um, little nod to later. Yeah. And- mm. uh, and he sees the hare jumping into the fire, uh, and he, his dad sang him a little song. It's a beautiful memory. But just before he has that memory, the nurse, who does not like her, <laughs> Miss Spruce, <sighs> who we don't like either, like, <laughs> what a terrible person. Anyway, she comes in and is suddenly, like, accusing Tiffany of, like, what are you doing to him? Because she can see him, you know, she's holding up this poker. And he's given her the bag of money, which is, like, some gold coins <laughs> that are worth a lot of money if you sell them in the city. And it, you know, I could circumstantially, but only if you've got a suspicious and, you know, shriveled little mind. <laughs> um, and then he has his epiphany. He has his great memory. She runs out of the room, doesn't see him actually die. And then he has this, yeah, beautiful moment where he dies. And then she's accused of causing it and, and stealing this money and all this other stuff. And the guards show up, which is when we meet Sergeant Brian. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, like, I do like Sergeant Brian. He's very much not the most important guard in this book, as we'll come to, but he, he's a lovely character. He's just trying to do his best and who is totally immune to the influence of the cunning man later on, by the way, is always on Tiffany's side every time we see him, even if he also feels like he has to do what either of the barons are telling him to do. And she sort of just does not put up with Miss Spruce's uh, nonsense and instead just goes straight into witch mode. Mm. Take the baron downstairs. I'll lay out the body. I'll do the you know woman's work, as she puts it. We meet Preston. Yeah. We do meet Preston. Who is helpful and knows exactly what is needed. The soil and the salt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes things easier for her. Like, then that's a good sort of setting things up. Yeah. He's very much playing dumb. And you don't, I didn't really notice him that much in this scene, which I think is very much intentional. Because um, he does, he does, he is very helpful, but he also comes across as a bit dumb because he says a few wrong words and stuff and, you know, he's a simple guard who knows a few useful things and is very helpful and nice. Um, and it's not till later that we sort of really see the real Preston behind that facade. But it's, yeah, it's delightful anyway. Yeah. After he goes and, and she does the laying out of the Baron, I particularly loved that she cries while she does it because mm. that's what's needful. And she's not precious about it. She's not sobbing. She's just crying in a way that is completely natural and appropriate and she doesn't sort of, you know, berate herself for it or try to choke back her tears or anything. She just has a cry. And, yeah. you know, she at other points in the book she mentions often that, that when she's doing this kind of work or laying people out or seeing people on their deathbeds, she cries. And I think, you know, it's not something that you always see, you know, the, the idea that, you know, it's totally appropriate grief and it doesn't need to be either performed or choked back. It's just what you do. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the expression of, of grief and the funeral later on is really great in this book. Like, the, you don't see a lot of funerals in Pratchett books, even though there's often people who die. But this one is so central to this book, and it's yeah. it's beautiful. 
And because she's been coming here for like, was it two years to, to look after him? Like yeah. she would have built up a real relationship. And she literally takes on his pain like throughout that time mm. as well. So, but it is also interesting that she, she's not ashamed of crying, but she also doesn't let other people, she always makes sure to do it where she's not going to be seen crying yeah. because it's not, not what the witch does. Mm-hmm. So yeah. 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 A lot in one sentence. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that in this book, I think. <laughs> there's there's yeah. a lot of sentences that do a lot of heavy lifting. Lifting, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. But they're very... Which is amazing because there's so many sentences also. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's quite long yeah. really, isn't it? But it's yeah. it's um, they're very specially constructed sentences, those ones. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're great. But look, this prompts her to realise that they're going to have to get Roland to come home because he's gone off to the city to go shopping for things. And I don't think it's said explicitly at this point, but they're shopping for stuff that's kind of for the wedding is the yeah. implication, I think. Um, and they're in the city and they don't say where he's gone exactly. So it was a bit of a pleasant surprise to me when it turns out to have been Ankh-Morpork. Uh, and that's where she's got to go because she decides, well, someone's got to go and tell him that the Baron is dead and he needs to come home because otherwise we're without a Baron and he's the new Baron. And so she- she's saving Brian from having to do it. It's again, that taking on the burden for someone else. Yeah. Because yeah. it would take him ages. To do it, and then she's got to he's got to find him in the city of a million people, which is like might as well be an entire other planet, as far as people from the chalk are concerned. Um, I saw it more as an emotional thing, though, like not even not necessarily like a practical thing. It's just she saw him like preparing to do it, and that he was sort of struggling. She's like, oh, it's easier if I just do it. Yeah. Mm. Plus, she has fiegels, um, which is helpful for finding people. <laughs> yeah, and yes, cleaning indeed. kitchens, which she uh, does in the meantime, <laughs> goes to see Mrs. Petty, and um, they. It's very mean. I don't know. Again, you know, to go back to the Petties for a second, the way that Mrs. Petty is is described is alternately very sympathetic. Like there's a lot of lines about the way that she talks being the way that someone who is frightened what will happen when they stop talking talks. But uh, which I, you know, is quite a there's a, there's a level of insight into intimate partner violence and fear and coercive control, like all the things that we talk about in a modern context. There's a level of awareness of that even though it doesn't necessarily maybe go as deep as, you know, a writer writing today might go. But there's also quite a bit of meanness about her in that she's portrayed as not very smart and not very diligent around the home and all that kind of stuff. I read that not as Pratchett judging, but as Tiffany Mm. battling between the less generous sides of herself and the self she wants to be. So like she wants to be the kinder self, but she is the one who's making those judgments and also trying to hold them back. So that's how I saw that sort of contrast within the scene, that it was a Tiffany thing and her grappling with her role. Mm. Well, and that she, and that she stuffs it up ultimately, that Mm. she is so frustrated by Mrs. Petty I think, you know, and it's, it's not as a simple straight line from you're annoying. I'm just going to bulldoze you, but Mrs. Petty isn't pulling herself together or behaving or whatever in what it, in the way that Tiffany wants her to. And so rather than Tiffany kind of bending, she just sort of barrels through and then deeply regrets having done it. Mm. But mm. so yeah, I, I took that sort of ungenerous reading to be sort of almost taking us on the journey with Tiffany a bit, which Pratchett is so good at, you know, that we get a bit annoyed too. You know, good, good, yes, clean up her place. That'll help her pull it together. And then we have the moment with Tiffany of being like, actually, you know, know, I think she says something like any woman in the village actually could have handled this better than her. And there's so much in that. There's, well, yeah, and if any woman could have, then why didn't you let any woman in the village do it? You don't have to do it all yourself. 
And there's also this layer of she's young. She is a full-blown witch, but she is also, you know, she's no Granny Weatherwax. She's no Nanny Og. Like, she, hmm. she's still early on. And I think, you know, over previous books, he gives us plenty of signals that, you know, Granny Weatherwax stuffed up herself, you know, plenty of times when she was younger. Yeah. Tiffany just can't imagine mm-hmm. it. But we're almost seeing a young Esme Weatherwax kind of, you know, <laughs> messing up and learning and one day she'll both act like it never happened and also know it did. But, <laughs> you know, yeah. we're seeing that learning. I do think there's also an element of none of the other women in the village are there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. None of them have showed up. And yes. she could go around and boss someone too, but- you know, the conversation has only just happened about how the Akings are going to keep an eye on things. But Mrs. Aking's not yeah. there cleaning up Mrs. Petty's yeah. kitchen for her or helping yeah. her do it herself. Instead, she gets the Feagles to do it, which scares the crap out of her. I mean, fair. <laughs> yeah. But can they come to my house? Uh, I know. I promise not to be afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Lo- I love the footnote where uh, she talks about how the other witches are very impressed that she gets them to do chores, but then- she says, unfortunately, it's just true that they'll do any chore as long as it involves a lot of noise yeah. <laughs> and, and possibly scaring people. I, and that's not quite the phrase. But, yeah, I thought that, yeah. Was, that was very great. Yes. She gets ready to go. I mean, she goes home first and has a night's sleep before she gets on the broom to head to Hank Morpork, where she finds that her brother Wentworth has been in a fight because some other kid called her a witch. And mm-hmm. she's like, but I am a witch. And he's like, yeah, but he didn't mean it in a good way. Anyway, and yeah. that leads to a conversation with her mother where we start to hear about people have started to turn against witches. People are not respecting them, which is interesting because there was a theme where on the chalk, because they haven't had an official witch, like Granny Aking was clearly a witch, but not in name. Mm. Like she did yeah. fulfilled the role, had the power in a but way. No hat. But no hat and yeah. and was not a witch in the traditional sense. And so they've always been a bit suspicious. And there's that one, I can't remember which book it's in. I think it might be the second one where she starts stamping the witch on the cheeses that she makes or the butter in order to try and hmm. turn that perception around and it starts to work. But then yeah, this she's is all- made herself a little- That's right. I forgot yeah, that. Th- this is clearly like undone all of that now. Yeah. And we're about to find out why. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and she heads to Ankmore Pork, but has to make an emergency landing because Darth Woolley sets fire to her <laughs> broomstick. Oh. Where the Feagles are- Living up to his name. I unapologetically love Darth Woolley. He's the best. He's the, the. I mean, all the Feagles are, but chaos. he is. He is particularly a plot machine. He just any time yeah. you need an obstacle, he's like, oh, "I accidentally <laughs> set fire to your broomstick." <laughs> uh, great. He lived in a woolly-shaped world of his own. Very good. Oh, yeah. God. Very good. Very good. Uh, but yeah, she makes this uh, emergency landing on top of a coach, uh, driven by Mister Carpet Layer, who is just a delightful incidental character. <laughs> I enjoyed him. Isn't he? And mm. uh, doesn't shatter the mirror ball that he is transporting from the dwarfs to Hank Morpork, mm-hmm. which is going to a music hall, uh, a theme we'll come back to. But uh, he drops it because he has jumping bones, uh, which sort of causes <laughs> him to have spasms and, and intense pain and not to be able to sleep properly. And so she says, well, look, I can mm. sort this out for you. And while she's doing that, she meets for the first time what we will later come to know as the cunning man. Who is, Which is the name of the chapter, so they, you know. Yes, but the characters don't find out what he's called yet, and I thought that was very, mm. that was cunning of you, Pratchett. Uh, mm. This, I mean, this is the first time we see him, and he, at start he just seems like an awful man accusing her of doing horrible things, like, get away from that man. And, in fact, he seems like just a regular person who hates witches. He doesn't seem like a witch hunter at this point. 
And it's not until he gets really close and she sees under the shadow of the brim of his hat that she realizes, wait a minute, this guy's got no eyes. He's got like two holes and go all the way through his head, which was a weird detail that really creepy, though. I I like that. And also he's not tangible. He's like an apparition and no one else can see or hear him. And he has this tremendous and the the number of different ways that he describes the stink of the cunning man and the way that it's explained where it comes from later on. Just so good horrifying like what a scary guy yeah i'm just shuddering (laughs) he's so deliciously creepy like it's every time i think that pratchett has done his creepiest tiffany villain (laughs) he comes up with this guy Mm -hmm. like this guy with no eyes who like incites hatred in those around you and even inside yourself and who stinks like it's just but it's not like there's no comedy there at all like no all of the comedy is sucked away the moment he comes into a scene. So, like, it's very effective. Like, he does kind of the thing that he does in the book as soon as he enters the scene. Oh, Just yeah. creepy. Just really creepy. That's a really cool observation. Because you, you think about other kind of unequivocally bad villains. Like, I, you know, I go to, like, Nightwatch and Casa, for instance, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, sociopath. But there's still comedy in scenes that he's mm. in, even when he's trying to do really awful things, it'll, you know, we'll still have Vimes kind of making comedic calculations, you know, during chase scenes or whatever. Whereas in this, it's just the temperature drops, the air leaves the room. Yeah. There's nothing. Because Carson, like, cracks a few jokes of his own too, you know, like he's trying yeah. to be the wisecracking. I mean, I think yeah. he's he is he is obviously a terrible, like a, an awful villain, but he's also not sure. fully fleshed out because that's not his purpose in that narrative, right? And he's sort of like- an obstacle rather than the obstacle, if that makes sense. But I agree, like, he's still got that sense of comedy. And Mr. You know, Taya Timmy is the same, like, even just his name and the way he insists on it being pronounced correctly um, and the things that he's he bouquet. says. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, there's that sense of comedy with them. Not with this. And not, not with the Hiver. Not really even with the Wintersmith. Like, he's not aware of himself being a villain, but he's not comedic in that way. We were talking earlier about how Brian doesn't get taken in by Mr. Creepy No Eyes. Like, mm. he is not influenced mm-hmm. by it. Is it because his name is, like, brain that's slightly <laughs> different to everyone else's? I mean, uh, honestly, I rule nothing I mean, I- out when Terry Pratchett is writing it. I rule nothing out at well, all. I think it's because he's pure of heart. And as we kind of discover when we hear about his poetry writing for his wife, which is super mm. delightful, uh, I really enjoyed that. But he's just, you know, he's just such a sweet guy, Brian. Uh, as is Preston in his way, in a different way, maybe, but you know, yeah. they are. And the repeated refrain that we'll get to in a minute, cause we're about to meet Mrs. Proust is that poison goes mm. where poison's welcome. And I don't think it is welcome mm. in Brian or Preston. Yeah. Um, or several of the other characters we meet. I mean, Mr. Carpet Layer doesn't get affected by the cunning man. He doesn't get up and say, you know, you're, I mean, he's heard the stories mm. about witches that have been going around and he is very suspicious of her being a witch. He mostly just says, you know, do you sure you want to wear a, that hat uh-huh. as you go into the city? Yeah. Like, it's not really safe. I mean, the exchange that I always remember from this scene is when Tiffany just says, are you scared of me, Mr. Carpet Lair? And he says, that's a very scary question, miss. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> yes. that is some good Pratchett dialogue there. Oh. Yeah. Because Tiffany also then follows that up by thinking, yes, it is a scary question. Your question. <laughs> oh, it was so good. But yeah, he's he's not affected either. And he's quite, mm. he's quite observant too. Cause like there's that nice bit where before she does the sort of realignment of his bones, she felt a bit chiropractic, but you know, whatever <laughs> it's witchery, yeah. but she also says the word to the horses that she's learned from a blacksmith so that they don't get scared by what she's about to do. If he screams out in pain, 
And he notices that and says, that's very thoughtful. So they have this sort of nice relationship, yeah. but nonetheless is tainted by these stories that he's heard about witches. Yeah. Uh, but he mm. seems, he seems quite pure at heart as well. And he's a little bit nervous, but he's not like, you don't see him joining a mob, <laughs> you know? No. But he gives her a lift into town. And he's happy to do it and forget about any insurance claims. First of all, because she's fixed his back. But second of all, because even though he's dropped and smashed the mirror ball, the Fiegels put it back mm-hmm. together, which they say is easy because it was in smithereens and they can push the molecules, as they call them, together to fix things. I, and I'm like, yeah. I love that the Fiegels have all these magical talents that they just, it's just normal for them. So they never think about mentioning it until they come up. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I totally believe that they can do that. Uh, right. It's convenient narratively as well. <laughs> yeah, it's a good setup for what's going to happen shortly as well. As we head into Angmore Pork, I have I have a beef, um, which oh. and mm. I, I I don't I know I know I have so few and like you know we all, we all know I worship the ground this man walks on, but I'm usually really good at reading stuff without my author brain switched on, but it, this just really jumped out at me that in earlier books when she was going off to apprentice. It felt like an epic journey just to get to another village. And this felt like nothing. She just, she flew on her broomstick for a little while, which we've established is really not that much faster than walking pace. And then she got on a, a carriage, didn't seem to stay the night or sort of spend very long on the carriage. And then she arrived and I was like, wait a minute. I didn't think Agmorpok was this close. So I was, it felt like a little bit like the journey wasn't big enough. And I was then so surprised that he just dropped in that, oh, this was her second trip to Ankhmore Pork. And yeah. she kind of already knew where some things were and sort of took herself in. I thought, why on God's green earth would you waste the chance to have someone walk into Ankhmore Pork for the first time? <laughs> I didn't get it. It's, And I wondered whether it was – I know he talked about how he sort of tried to strip the book back a bit to make it fit for, for younger readers into into something slightly more streamlined. Was that it? But it just seems to me like that's such a classic Pratchett moment, someone arriving in the big city. And not just a classic Pratchett moment, actually, a classic anything moment, mm. you know, the mm. country girl in the big city. Why wouldn't you do it instead of having her arrive somewhere she kind of already knows a bit? That is anyway, a good that, question. That's my beef. Welcome to my TED Talk. I get you. Like, I clocked that. I'd only been there once before, line, and I'm like, what? What? I mean, I think partly I think that is to remind us that some time has passed between this book and the last book. There's not a lot of that in the previous Tiffany books from memory where there's also a couple of years that pass. But, yeah, I don't know. Because it's not as if she really knows her way around and doesn't need to, like, get directions. Because, like, she's never been to Boffo's before in person. I mean, I had a similar beef in a way in that she goes to Boffo's and meets Mrs. Proust, who we'll talk about. Um, But the way that they talk about Boffo's in this book is that it's a witch supply store and all the witches use it. Whereas in Wintersmith, it's like, no, that's that's like Miss Treason's secret weapon that nobody yeah, knows about. Knows about. And she, yeah. we Tiffany figures it out. And the only reason other people know is because she tells Anagramma. And I don't think, and I mean, look, I'll probably go back and look and maybe there's a reference in a line somewhere that, oh, yeah, a few other witches do it as well. But I don't remember that. And for me, it felt like. This is something that Pratchett does is he'll have an idea and it'll be cool and interesting and and unique. But then when he writes another story, he's like, I don't care about what I said about it before. I've got a new version of this idea and that's what we're running with now. So now it's like all witches get stuff from Boffo Supply Shop. And so, of course, as a result, it has to be run by a city witch, 
Um, and, yes. and again, this is slightly weird. Like, Granny and Nanny have been to Ankh-Morpork a few times, and they've never met any witches in the city. Um, that they know. No, but they'd know. They would know. I mean, they, they sort of talk to Mrs. Whitlow when they visit the university in equal rights, I think. She sort of accords her the same respect as a witchy, but she's not a witch. Mm. Uh, and a little bit similar with the seamstresses who they stay with and who Nanny is uh, scandalised that Granny has already met in uh, Masquerade. But I thought that was a little bit weird. It's a, it is a big- it feels like a big retcon because Mrs. Proust has clearly been here for a long time. And mm. there are other witches in Ankh-Morpork as well. There's at least two that we meet. And there's a couple of others mentioned in another book, I think. So, it's it feels like it's weird. It's just so weird to go back to the one place that we feel like we know really well and find out another layer of it that we feel like we should already know. Does that make sense? And she's not hiding it either. Like she's act. She like works with the what? Like people know her. She's got relationships. She looks like she's a not witch. Just like a secret witch. It's like her whole thing is she looks like a classic. <laughs> like yeah. wicked, she looks like the Wicked Witch of the West. I mean, she's not described as being the green. master of her face. Yeah, she, <laughs> she models all of the witch masks and gloves and stuff on her own features, which I thought was <laughs> including like the the warts and stuff. Thought that was very funny. That mm. was a good reveal. I did not expect it. Yeah. But yeah, uh, and then there's that great bit where they're going to go back out on the street. And even Mrs. Proust is like, look, people are a bit anti-witch at the moment. You probably should take your hat off. And Tiffy's like, no. She's like, okay, well, in that case, and she sprinkles some glitter on it and puts a tag <laughs> yeah. on it. So it looks like a fake one. Very funny. I thought, yes, loved it. And that felt very witch. Like it the, did. the mm. practicality of it. And there being a joke shop in Ankh-Morpork also felt very Ankh-Morpork. Like I had no problem with that. Um, yeah. the way that she deals with the guy's going to throw the brick through her window. That was also, yep. I mean, she's a boss witch. She's good. <laughs> she's good at yeah. her job. Did you feel that Pratchett had done a bit of reading about cauldrons and just really wanted us to know about <laughs> cauldrons? Cause there's like a few cauldron footnotes. And I was like, do we need this? I mean, I'm enjoying it, but <laughs> yeah, we find out how people use them much. to cook. We find out, uh, that you could make them out of leather, leather. cauldrons. Yeah. I, well, look, and there's always an element of that in his books, but normally it's incorporated more into the plot. Uh, I think it's mainly in yeah. the younger readers ones where he just goes, here's some interesting information you probably don't know. And he feels like he can get away with it a bit more. Um, but Mrs. Priest helps her out. Uh, they go to a dwarf mechanics, basically, to get the broomstick fixed. And they're, they're sort of like sucking on their teeth and going, oh, it's going to be expensive. And then she mentions the feagles <laughs> and they all get frightened and fix it for free. That was a great scene. <laughs> a lot of fun there. And then as they leave and they're talking about the Feagles, they hear the smashing of glass, which we've previously been told is, mm-hmm. you know, like the theme song for the Feagles. And sure <laughs> enough, uh, they've just been getting drunk and having a big fight in the King's Head pub, which they have basically demolished. Like, uh, we learned that they've destroyed the floor. The beams are falling down. People are like running. Uh, it's, it's a whole scene. And it turns out this is where not only Roland and Letitia, but also Letitia's mother, the Duchess of Keepsake, mm. have been staying. But the Feagles don't stop fighting until We Mad Arthur shows up. We Mad Arthur. The gnome member of the Watch, who we discover in this book, as we have wondered about in previous books, is not a gnome. He is a Feagle who was found <laughs> by gnomes. And it all comes <laughs> together and makes sense. But he- I- why is it, do you think? Because this didn't entirely- I don't know why this made sense, but why is it do you think he, one Feagle gnome policeman, is able to wander in there and just take out a whole bunch of Feagles? It's all like cobbling knowledge. <laughs> yeah. I mean- He put the boot in really well. Is that what you say? <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um, he's a shoe in Oh, no. Sorry. Yeah. 
I, I mean, I assumed that he had some kind of technique or like, you know, carrot had taught him. I don't know. Training. Yeah. Training, yeah. I assume. Discipline. Yeah. As opposed to just still, flailing like- madly. Yeah. I, it, I did notice. I mean, Tiffany is suitably shocked. Right. And I mean, what a cool moment when the watch show up and they all just like sit down and chill out and send him in. Like, yeah, that was, yeah, delightful power move. And it is like we get so few crossovers in the Discworld books. Mm. Like you'd think there'd be more, but there just aren't that many. And this is one of those rare instances where a couple of characters wander in from one of the other series and do something significant. And it's, you know, Captain Carrot and Wee Mad Arthur and Captain Angua, who she's a captain now. And they all, you know, they have their little part to play in sort of breaking up the fracar and arresting Tiffany and taking her away before the influence of the cunning man can take over the mob. But it's already starting to influence Roland, who is kind of mm. very upset. I mean, it doesn't go well, this whole let's tell Roland that his dad's dead because, you know, the inn you're staying in has been demolished and I turn up and clearly I've got something to do with it and I've just blurted <laughs> yeah. out, your dad's dead. Like, it's not. <laughs> it's like the worst possible version of that exchange. And so they they know and they're going to go home. Uh, but she ends up staying the night in the jail cell in the watch house. Well, not in a jail cell. That they're at, We're actually mm. quite clear about that. She, she talks uh-huh. about being in jail and Mrs. Brewster's like, no, no. We're in the city watch house. You'll know when you're in jail because everyone will be screaming <laughs> and suffering. We're going to be bought a nice meal. I don't want to pick you up on a technicality here, but doesn't she yeah. make the distinction between a jail cell and prison? Because isn't, isn't a jail yeah, the thing they have in a watch and house? And the tanty, I think. I thought I understood this, but now I'm not so sure. <laughs> but I, you're right, though. They're not in prison. Yeah, they're in the watch house. They're not in the bad one. No. The really bad one. And they're also yeah. having wine. They do. Yes. They do. They get wine and, and a meal. It's very nice. But also they feel that the influence of the cunning man is seeping into them because they argue yeah. with each other. And Mrs. Priest slaps Tiffany and the Feagles are like, we won't get involved with this because they've come along. Part of the reason <laughs> yeah. Carrot has imprisoned her <laughs> is so that the Feagles will go along and not cause any more trouble. Um, yeah. And, uh, which and to protect her. And to protect her from the mob, which seems to be getting agitated, yes. But this is where Mrs. Proust basically says, yeah, this happens every couple of hundred years. Like, people just start to turn on witches. Nobody knows why it happens. It's pretty bad. And she, like, talks about some sort of the Crucible-style witch killings, although she does say, I don't think any actual witch ever got burned or pressed with stones. Like, I think those were innocent old ladies who, you know, people thought were a bit witchy. Um, And when they ran out of old ladies, you know, it was old men or strangers or other people they didn't trust. And the only time that this sort of sickness, the poison that goes where poison's welcome, burns out is when there's no one left. They've all turned on each other and kind of they're all dead. But she goes to great pains to say, we don't really know why it happens. And then later on the book, not that much later, in fact, only a chapter or two later, we find out that, no, there's a very definite origin for it. And some witches have fought this thing and they know all about him. So, I, this was very confusing to me. I was like, you can't have it both ways, Pratchett. Either it's a mystery and Tiffany is discovering it for the first time, or it's a recurring threat to witchcraft that witches do know about, but every now and then a witch has to rise to the challenge. It just, it seemed like he was trying to have that both ways, which I did not like very much, to be honest. In every generation, a witch is born that must fight against the- <laughs> I was just thinking, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think back. Is the intention Mrs. Proust doesn't know, but others do because it was Granny Weatherwax who fought last time. But does does Mrs. Proust then turn out to know later? I can't remember. She doesn't ever say that she knows what it is. She could just be like in a bubble. Well, having said that, she's the one who figures out that the prisoner is 
possessed. Right. right? Yeah. And goes bolting. But she never has that conversation. So she must know. Because the one who tells Tiffany about that is Escarina, who we'll come to in a moment. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it just doesn't quite hang together. Because if, if she's pretending not to know, there's not really Why? any reason Why? for that, right? Yeah. So, I don't- I think there's some weird- Maybe this is an editing thing where they didn't quite work this out. But originally, maybe it was a big mystery and Tiffany was the first one to figure out it was the cunning man. But the way that they talk about witches having fought him, it seems impossible that they don't know at least what he is, even if they don't know his actual origin. Um, yeah. Mm. So, I don't know. It's a bit- I found that a bit confusing. But it doesn't- Look, I found it annoying, but it didn't ruin the book for me, I guess, is where I'm going. But it was- There are a mm. few things like that in this book where I'm like, this is plot bits don't quite line up, but it's okay. I'm still having a good time. Um, yeah. yeah. Tweet your explanations of why we're wrong and have completely missed the point. Yeah, please tell us. Uh, we love that kind of thing. This is where also Mrs. Proust drops the advice that there's someone else in the city who will help you out, but you won't find them. They'll find you. Very mysterious. Uh, and in fact, yeah. the next day when they leave the cells, after they've had their meal that <laughs> evening, uh, they go back to the king's head, which is no longer the king's head, but it's also no longer mm. demolished. It's been put back together, but back to front. And people are giving it various humorous names. And Tiffany, hilariously, very innocently says, oh, are they calling it the king's neck? And they're like, oh, they wish they were calling it the king's neck. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Although they do eventually call it the king's neck, I think, because she makes that suggestion. Yeah. And uh, the Vimes. Because Vimes does not like it being called the king's back, uh, which I <laughs> thought was a great touch uh, when he's there. Um, a bit more information about his ancestor that we always hear about, but like we get some more detail on this. And I'm not sure if I have previously just missed some, but it felt like we got a bit more of like Stoneface's actual story. There's definitely the the insinuation that the king that he killed was doing awful things to children. That was there, I think. But the bit where he's in the dock and saying, you know, if the, yeah. if the beast had many heads, I'd have never stopped until I cut off every one or whatever he says. Like, that, that was new. That was quite good. I like that. Yeah, that was a great line. Yeah. Hmm. I remember thinking about they hanged him, then they built a statue which says everything you need to know about people, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Doesn't it just? Yeah. And there's little bits like that where he's revisiting stuff that if you've read a lot of the books, you probably, like, you're at least familiar with these ideas, even if he's expressing new bits of them or adding to them. But I think that's also because he's introducing some of this stuff to readers who he thinks maybe haven't read the rest of Discworld because mm. they're coming into it through Tiffany. Yeah. I think that's quite clever of him to do that. But uh, Vimes is there and it's basically like, look, I'm happy to just call this a nil-all draw. Like, there was a crime, but <laughs> right. it's been sort of made good again, so I'll just let it go. But uh, you got to leave. These guys are too <laughs> dangerous. The fecals have got to be out by tomorrow and you should probably leave as well. And just as they're having that conversation, the cunning man is back. She can feel his presence. And just as she's worried that the crowd's starting to turn- she is whisked away into the underground of Ankh-Morpork and taken to the Unreal Estate to have tea with the one and only Miss Escarina Smith. Yes. Who, look, I- Well, when it clicked that it was her, I was like, oh my you, God. You didn't know she was in this book? <laughs> no, I didn't. I got Me to neither. experience that unfolding um, mm-hmm. and it was just such a joy because I was like, oh, who's this mysterious new character? And then then it took until the shambles with the horse head and the staff. I'm like, the staff. And then that's where I yeah. got it. Yeah, that was uh, exactly the same. I spotted the staff and went, wait a moment. <laughs> Just like Tiffany does. Yeah. Right. 
Yes, exactly. Oh, I wish Which I had great. known. great. I love that. I wish I had known. What a great reveal. But I, I had been spoiled for that. I knew she was in this book, but I didn't really know how she was going to show up or what has happened to her in the meantime. And what we discover is that uh, she has become a very powerful, weird wizard <laughs> who can bend space and time and go traveling through time to see other things. Uh, mm. partly from learning stuff from her, um, boyfriend from back in the day, Simon, uh, who, who basically becomes the Stephen Hawking of the Discworld, the way that he's described. If that's accurate, it's all from the third party sense. She doesn't really say much about him, but she has brought Tiffany here to reveal that she has gone back in time, like a thousand years to see the origin of the cunning man. And it's a good horror story backstory for a villain. Yeah. Right? So yeah. good. And I like that even in this, like, it's, it, he tells it over, like, three pages, but even here, he gives it a little twist because there's, like, the witch hunter who finds the most powerful witch of the day, who's also very, very beautiful, and he falls in love with her because, of course, that's the way these stories go, and he's trying to figure out, can I save her? Can I bust her out? And he's trying to figure out, can I fight these other witch finders? Well, how do I get her up free? Can we get in a cart and escape? And then as he's sort of going towards her with his sword and trying to figure all this stuff out, he realizes right at the last minute, it's like, none of that matters because she's not going to forgive me for the fact that I'm a witch finder and I burned all these witches. And she looks right at him and grabs him. And I think if I'm remembering the sequence of events right, makes him drop his torch into the pyre where she's tied up and they mm. both go up in flames. And he survives, but he's horribly injured. And she well, dies. And she but holds she him. Holds like him she there. She grabs him and holds him in the fire. And I'm like, that is the most badass move of all time. And it doesn't, like, it's very subtle. Like, it, I, it took me a while to sort of connect these two things. But um, he's got no eyes. He's got these holes through his head. But she just locks eyes with him and does not look away yeah. while she's doing that. And I think that's why he's yeah. got these holes burned through his head because she holds that gaze. Yeah. Amazing. And he sort it's of, just- so he survives. He, he hunts down witches. He starts influencing people to hate witches. But his idea, his hatred lives on. And I, I just love that as a as a trope, like the hatred or the emotion that lives on beyond the person. And now he's not even a ghost. He's an idea is what she says. And, oh, so good. Oh, creepy. Yeah. So creepy. And so cinematic. Like, can't yeah. you picture exactly how that shot is framed as she, like, grabs him by his shirt front and pulls him in against her? Like, oh, yeah. I saw that in my head very clearly. I was like, oh, that's so oh, cool. you can yeah. picture him. Yeah. And the the hat, I think because the, the earlier detail with the hat, like, he's got the big wide-brimmed hat, like a really old-school Puritan witch hunter is, I think, the yeah. kind of- the, the visual we're meant to imagine, which is, again, you know, Pratchett's really playing fast and loose with history here and the disc world like a thousand years ago. I don't imagine people dressed like that on the disc, but apparently they did. Okay, that's fine. It's a fantasy kingdom. Things were the same for hundreds and hundreds of years until now. So that's fine. It makes sense. But yeah, it's so good. Yeah. How did you feel about the fact that Escarina kind of basically drops in as a data sex machine to go, hey, you know this thing that's mysterious and you don't know what it is? Here's what it is. <laughs> Uh, through no effort of Tiffany's, through no cunning, it's just, here's what you need to know. But it's not, because she doesn't really solve the problem. And it was so delightful to see her that I didn't really mind it. But when I think about it from a narrative perspective, I'm like, mm, I don't know. How do you feel about it? It was a bit annoying, but there was also the thing where she's like, oh, well, you know people who've defeated him. Can you tell me? And she's like, no, no, you got to figure it out on your own. I'm like, because he's like, he's immune to that thing. But I was kind of like, ah. But I liked I it. Uh, I'm happy to see her. That's fine. Mm. Yeah. Like, I think I was happy enough to see her that I, I wonder, you know, if we were younger readers coming in via this, maybe we wouldn't have felt the same way. Maybe we'd be like, who is this? But I mean, sometimes you just got to deliver a bit of exposition and make it fun. 
and, yeah. oh, and you know, rather than stringing it out. And he, he nails it. And it was, so at the beginning of the book, you know, there's, there's so, a, a line that I don't recall perfectly, but it was sort of about, you know, women were witches and men were wizards. And it's a very binary statement that I was like, Oh, okay. That's probably not how you'd write that today. Mm. And then Esk shows up, you know, the, the girl who, who crossed that line very early on you know, yeah. in the books. And mm. this was also the moment at which I thought, oh, are we investigating roles a bit more? Is that is that where you're going? Like are you are you thinking a bit about gender roles in this book? Because she also, you know, we have Tiffany talking to Preston about women's work. You know, the laying out of the dead is women's work. So it was when Esk showed up I thought, oh, are you perhaps this is something that's on your mind right now. Mm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, th- I, that line that you're talking about, I think it's uh, there are four kinds of people in the world. There are men and women and witches and wizards, I think is the, that's the, one. the line. Yes. Which I, yeah. when I read it, I was like, oh, that's that's a very J.K. Rowling thing to say, isn't it? In a kind yeah, of that's awful- not dated as well, is it? No, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it makes sense in the context of the disc world and particularly in the context of stories like Equal Rights and this book where those roles are being, yeah, as you say, interrogated and questioned. Even with Preston, you know, is kind of questioning those roles a bit. Yeah. We've got a long history of gender ambiguous dwarves and, you know, yeah. it's it, it struck me as quite binary for someone who has not been binary in the past, I guess, mm. and who I saw as being much more comfortable with the idea of a continuum than a lot of his peers were a long time ago. Yeah, mm. he got there. He definitely, it was, a, it was a journey, but he got there. Yeah, for sure. So it does make sense that she'd be included to address that as well. Yeah. yeah. So I, I agree. And, you know, you were talking about, you know, we always talk about show, don't tell, but sometimes you've got to tell. A great method for yeah. doing that is have a character do the telling. Yeah. If this was a film, I can imagine it being like, you know, when it's a live action film or a CG film, and I believe this is something they do in the Amazing Maurice movie, but um, instead of when they tell a story about something happening, they switch to animation or they switch to a different style yeah. of animation or a different style of drawing or in order to show this is a flashback, this is a story that I'm telling you. I mean, sometimes yeah. it's just the it's just the right move. I've, in in the book I've got about to come out, this was something I thought about at length, which is why I guess I have a strong opinion on it. But you know, I need to tell you some of the backstory of the War of the Gods that happened 500 years ago, and I tried so many different ways to sprinkle it through, and I just had readers being like, "I'm just confused." And eventually, I thought, you know what? I have a character here who has no reason to know it, and I have a very bookish character who not only has every reason to know it, but like, look at him wrong, and he'll give you a lecture. <laughs> I'm going to use those two things, you know? Ah, uh, perfect. And when I ran it by a fresh round of readers, they loved it. You know, we have this idea that you can never deliver a lecture, but actually I think as readers we can find it very pleasurable if it's done well. Mm. Well, and in, I think also we're ready for the information is the other part of this. Oh, yeah. Is we're ready to be told. And so there. whereas yeah. sometimes when you're told something before you need it, you're like, why am I hearing this? This feels a little like I'm being told. At this point, the question is so live in our minds that we're like, great. We need to notice. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. I think I think the only thing that sort of didn't quite hang together for me was how there was this big emphasis on how it was a big mystery and even like a really powerful and well-established witch has no idea. And they talk about the group sort of collective memory of witches and nobody remembers, even though they remember this sort of anti-witch sentiment cropping up every couple of hundred years. And clearly it's like more frequently than that because 
Granny yeah, Weatherwax granny. is not much more than 100 years old. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, th- that's fine. It doesn't matter. It's very dramatically and emotionally satisfying, even if some of the uh, timeline might not quite hang together. That's fine. But the other thing that happens, they're in the Unreal Estate, which is the sort of magical nuclear waste dump behind the university, which hopefully will shield them from the cunning man. But both the Feagles and the cunning man find them at the same time. And so Esk gives Tiffany an exit and she gets out and flies away on a broomstick as quickly as possible, leaving Mrs. Proust alone to deal with the now angry mob of people turning on witches by herself, which she totally does. She runs and hides and then she uh, brings a statue to life to kick one of these two miscreants who does follow her in the ghoulies, basically. Um, And she deals with them very smartly, including a bit of sort of Jedi mind trick on one of them where she sort of says, this never happened. You were never here. And also you want to buy some stuff from the joke shop. (laughs) Just get some some subliminal advertising on the side, which I thought was was cheeky. Buy some magic noodles. Yeah. I mean, that's how you know that Tiffany didn't do a bad thing leaving her to it. The signal is that if she can crack jokes and she can be selling extra things, then- yeah. Tiffany didn't do the wrong no thing danger. splitting. And yeah. there's that moment too where Tiffany's like, oh, is it okay to leave her? And she's like, she's a witch. She can handle herself. And yeah. then it cuts to her handling herself. And you're like, yeah, this is great. This yeah. is fine. And it was just nice to see her have some more, you know, badass moments of her own because she's a new witch yeah. character we haven't met before. But then Tiffany heads home and things just get worse from this moment. Things are starting to go wrong at home as well. Yeah. She's home so fast also just to go back to the earlier beef, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. She does fly home without incidents. It's it's really skipped over the travel in this book. She's unlocked the fast travel. Actually, you know what? That's why Pratchett <laughs> said she's been there before. She's unlocked the fast travel option. <laughs> she's got save points that she can yeah, just- Yeah, exactly. If, uh, if you've played any video games, this is like Skyrim, listener, if you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about- don't worry about it. But anyway, <laughs> she goes home and sort of thinks about Esk on the way. We met Arthur, hitches a ride, because he's decided mm-hmm. to visit what he now realises is his family. And that's quite- we, I, I don't know how di- much detail we're going to go into about his journey, but it's basically the Feagles go and see him while they're still in the watch house and say, you're a Feagle, mate. <laughs> and he's like, well, I guess that makes sense because I was adopted by my known parents. And I never really felt like I fit in but I've made a home for myself here. And they're like, yeah, we can't believe you're a policeman. He's like, but I like being a policeman. (laughs) And then when he's on the way, there's a great bit later on where he also talks about how he likes living in the city because he loves the opera. The ballet and the the opera. Yeah, Yeah. it was- I thought that was so good to see a bit more of- Little thimble, like acorns full of coffee, like he likes those. Oh, yeah. It's just- oh, Does he go back? I mean, such I, a delight. I think it's kind of- it's. He does say at one point in the book that he's like, he's giving up the badge and he's going to go and live with them. But I'm like, don't do that. Like, go back to the- You like being in the city. You know, visit them. You can come back anytime you want. But I don't know. I was conflicted about that because I thought it was cool and very touching, particularly when Tiffany says, listen to me very well- you have come home. And it's like, I was like, oh, I'm going to cry. Like, this is a beautiful moment. But at the same time, I'm like, but I want you to stay in the watch. <laughs> I mean, being a Pratchett book, you just know this is the start of, you know, if the Feagles could learn to read, the Feagles could learn to go to Ankh-Morpork and appreciate the opera. And, you know, you, you could so easily have shown up three <laughs> books later and, you know, there's a bunch of Feagles with an opera habit, you know, arguing about the finer nuances yeah. of this soprano <laughs> and that. And it feels yeah. like a fit. So. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. It's a- I, I don't know that it's, it's not a binary choice necessarily for him. 
That's fair. No, there'll be exchange programs. They'll be back and forth. It'll be great. I mean, one of the things I, I talk about in making good comedy characters is to take two traits that really don't have anything to do with each other and just mash them together. It's like, I'm much more interested in a rough guy who thinks working for the watch is a great way to earn a living, but also he loves the opera. Great. There's some interesting <laughs> dynamics there. But anyway, she comes back to the chalk. And when they land at the Fiegel Mound, mm. very tense yeah. because there's a bunch of guards there with shovels and the Fiegels are like, we're going to kill you. Like, and they draw all their swords and she has to really talk them down because, you know, you cannot threaten the Fiegels home and family. This is not okay. But the reason they've been sent there is because word has got around. The story is Tiffany has given Amber to the fairies. Like, I mean, it's technically true in a way. Um, they are kind <laughs> no. of a fairy folk. It's not even remotely technically true. Well, okay. No, I mean- <laughs> Well, but it's not. No, you're right. Because she didn't give them I mean, don't they historically become extremely offended at being called fairies? They do. Because they- And Amber gave herself. They don't like the fairy queen. And the fairies are really evil and awful. Yeah. So, there's a whole thing there. And But she talks them down. They go back to the castle. And then she goes to see Roland, who is really cold. And I like that he doesn't often get angry in this book, but he's got this real coldness that is both unlike Mm. him in the previous book's and not the same as the way everyone else is being influenced. And I kind of liked that, but it still feels really awful because of the fact that they've been friends for three books. And I think it's in this chapter where there's the scene where he's being so awful to her and she's like, why are you like that? Like, we're friends. Like, we have this history. And she's, like, got the horse necklace. And she's like, I defied Granny Weatherwax for this thing that you gave me that she told me to throw away. And now this is how you're treating me. And it's like, whoa, yeah, you feel the full weight of that history. But there's also the Duchess's influence. She doesn't like Tiffany at all. Oh, isn't she fabulously terrible? She- mm, Oh, yeah. Like the, the worst. She's the worst. The Trying to teach her daughter to be like her as well, and you're just like, Ugh. But even she's got well, the, the weird side to her. the about the nettles, like, ugh. Oh. Mm-hmm. That was horrendous. That mm. was so awful. And I think that was- I mean, that scene's where you finally go, oh, maybe Letitia's all right, actually, because, you know, she makes Letitia recite this rhyme about grasping the nettle tightly, basically treating your staff like crap so that they do what they're told. And she says it, and everyone listens to her say it, and they all look a bit horrified, and she's like, <laughs> and runs off. And you're like, oh, okay, well, maybe she's not terrible. <laughs> maybe she's okay. Yeah. It's our first sign that if she doesn't think that's okay, then there may be more to her than we have previously thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the other thing is that Roland has clearly been influenced by Miss Spruce, the nurse's version of events, where she's said that Tiffany has stolen all this gold from the Baron and she's, you know, let him die doing weird witchcraft that maybe caused him to die if she didn't do it on purpose. And then she's just vanished. She's just gone because she's the worst. Um, Yeah. (laughs) We hate Miss Spruce. (laughs) And Tiffany has this altercation with the Duchess. There's a great bit where she's like poking all of the staff with her stick and Tiffany's mm. gone invisible and watches the exchange where she makes Letitia, you know, recite the poem. And then uh, she loses concentration because she's thinking about Letitia too much and trying not to be mean and becomes yeah. visible and says something. And uh, the Duchess Madam. is like, what did you call me? Yeah. <sighs> and then Preston arrives and she's like, arrest this woman. And he's like, oh, I can't do that, miss, because of uh, happy ass corpus. Uh, <laughs> he just <laughs> yeah. plays really dumb. And she goes to hit him and she uses magic to stop her and basically says, no, it's not happening on my watch. And it's just this great sort of back and forth of who's got the upper hand and you don't kind of doubt that Tiffany's going to win in the end. But at the same time, you're aware that in the situation that she's in, 
using magical force against somebody is not a good look. Ooh, no. This is risky. Uh, so even though she wins and she sort of sends the Duchess runs away, you're like, oh, but that's going to be bad, isn't it? That's going to that's not going to be good. And it isn't. It's from the battle, but not the war. Yeah. Yeah. Because the Duchess does sort of send Brian back and has Roland tell Tiffany she's got to leave. She refuses to leave. So they're like, okay, well, you've got to stay within the area of the castle and we're going to lock up your broomstick. And she says, really? How about I just lock myself in the dungeon and then you can all be safe from me? And there's this sort of whole kind of a repeated motive of that. She, she doesn't say, uh, I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me. <laughs> but she, she she does say her own version of that, which is like, I, I'm not locked in here safe from you. Like, I'm locked in here away from all of you. You don't have me now. You like The witch is not here to look after everyone. Uh, including your mum, Brian, who I, you know, look after her leg, which is injured. Uh, oh, but th- mm. this is also after the cook dies. We should we should mention that because the cook is heavily affected by the cunning man sort of virus that's yeah. going around. Starts mm. screaming about witchcraft and then stumbles over and falls into the cellar and dies. Uh, partly because she's very drunk. Has enough time passed that we can spoil the Hunger Games? Because I think so. Oh, yeah. It's been years. Spoiler warning, listener, for the Hunger Games. Skip forward to time XXXX <laughs> if you don't want to be spoiled for the Hunger Games. Uh, like, this was a very finnick moment for me. You know, in one of the later books, they're, they're running away from, oh, I don't know, the genetically modified dogs or something. It's the been months. a few years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he falls back down, you know, kind of a manhole and disappears into the depths. But he I comes mean, back your humble later, correspondent. Right? No, that's him dying. Oh no, that's right. He doesn't. They just sort of act like he's dead, even though you're not. You can't really be sure. Even right. And I spent so much of that book waiting for him to come back and be like, "Oh, I fought my way free, or I wasn't dead, or I'm going to show up at a key moment." And it was this long, slow kind of. Wait a minute. We're passing all of the waypoints where Finnick would read. Is <laughs> is he dead? But um, I, but, but I didn't mourn it correctly at the time because I, I didn't realize that it feels a bit like she falls down the stairs. I thought it was a comedic pratfall. And then, uh, yeah. And then the next chapter, they're like, she's dead. The next chapter, she's dead. And I'm like, sorry, what? <laughs> yeah. I was a bit shocked by that too. Uh, I was not having the correct mood for the scene for her to end up dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, it was a sharp right turn. Hey. Yeah. It was pretty full on. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like it was like that for the characters. So I don't think that it doesn't read like a technique. We're not like sort of Tiffany bumbling along and then, oh, no, it's gotten serious. It just actually just feels like that was just whiplash. And it was, yeah. yeah. There was another one of those great Pratchett moments that, you know, we sort of had earlier with Mrs. Petty and that, you know, that he does so well all the time where we are finding the cook totally objectionable. Mm -hmm. And then Tiffany reminds us, well, hang on, wait a minute, actually – her husband died and, you know, yeah. she fought with her daughter-in-law and can't see the grandkids and, you know, all of this stuff that you suddenly go, ah, oh, okay, there's so many places. E- even leaving aside the cunning man, there's so many reasons that you would be an angry person right now, but there's so many places for the poison to get in right now. And it feels like it's mm. getting into Tiffany a little bit as well because there's that bit where she goes out of her body in that scene and she starts to wonder, oh, what if I, could I, while I'm out of my body, can I just reach into like, can I just like stop her heart or something? Can I just do that? And yeah. then, and then there's the bit where her second, third and fourth thoughts all go, excuse me, this is not okay. <laughs> and that's when she starts going, wait, 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 wait pull, pull it back, pull it, pull it back. Remember who this woman is. That Remember wasn't what my your thought. Job is. This was not me. This is something influencing me. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting because there's not a lot of other times, apart from when she fights with Mrs. Proust. In the jail cell, uh, in the in the watch house, 
it doesn't feel like there's a lot of times when that influence is impacting her directly like that. So it was quite shocking at the yeah. time. But yeah, then he pulls it around, like you say, which is uh, was really good. She shuts herself in the dungeon, although not before she has the conversation with Preston, the first of several conversations where she mm-hmm. says, you're actually really smart, aren't you? What's your deal? <laughs> um, <laughs> and every time they talk, I started going, who is this guy? I need to know this guy yeah. some more. Yeah. He just gets better and Love better. Love him. Oh, he's mm. great. He's so good. Yeah. Love Preston. I love that he's not like dropped in as a love interest straight away. Like he's just kind mm. of a cool guy who's helpful and smart. And yeah. I think he does a really good job of giving us the reasons why they work together and not all of them from the two of them. Like part of it comes from the conversation she has with Roland about why they didn't work out. Because he's yeah. like, oh, you said this thing once about a word and you said, what does this word sound like? And I was like, what are you talking about? And you, and you said, oh, it sounds like this. And I was like, my brain doesn't work like that. Like, you're great, but we're not compatible. And then later on starts to have that exact conversation with Preston and it, they're on the same page. And, and you're like, works. okay, I see what you did there. <laughs> um, well, and it also gives you this moment of sympathy for Roland because he's right. He had, what did he, he said, what does he say? I have a two plus two, two equals four brain. Mm. And he's right. He might have been the one to make the call, but that doesn't make him the bad guy. Yeah. I think she says something like, and he, he realized that before I did, which is such yeah. like, you know, the thing that happens in relationships. There's always one person, even the most amicable breakups, there's always one person who realizes it before the other one. And it's, it's tough. We've got quite a lot of book to get through. Um, yeah. so shall we just jump to Letitia suddenly being, a lot more interesting as a character. Yes, because <laughs> Tiffany makes a shamble in the dungeon, realises someone's doing magic, puts this together with a couple of things that Letitia said, including coming into the dungeon and saying, I'm so sorry, and basically goes up to see her and they fly off to her home because Letitia reveals that she was a bit jealous of Roland's interest in Tiffany and so she cast a spell to get rid of her. Um, and it turns out she has magical talent. She's got the makings of a witch. Like there's a point where Tiffany's like, I don't know if you really can do any magic. And, you know, any, any old stick can be a wand. You don't actually need to do stuff out of a stupid book. And she picks up a stick and waves it in the air and lights happen. And she's like, you mean like this? Yeah. And Tiffany's like, okay, you might be the real deal. Uh, <laughs> and they go back to her house because that's where she left the spell that she cast, which turns out to be a piece of, and I love this phrase, unsympathetic magic. <laughs> so good. <laughs> called the ostrich trick where she's made a like a doll of Tiffany and stuck it upside down in a bucket of sand. And that's where we also find out she's dealt with these ghosts that are in her house in a really witchy way. Uh, I mean, we learn all this stuff about her and her home. And like, again, this is something I was going to say about the Duchess. She's so awful. But when you find out about this massive house they have where it's just her and Letitia living there, but there's like 250 servants, it turns out a lot of those servants are just looking after the old servants who can't do the job anymore. And they live in the, what do they call it? They, um, the retirement wing uh, or something? The pen- pension oh, wing? Oh, the pension, yeah, the pension wing <laughs> yeah. where the old servants live. And a lot of the servants just, that's their job is to look after the old servants. Um, yeah. so I thought that was an interesting side to her that you don't really see until much later in the book. Um, and you're like, why are you such a jerk? And then, I mean, we find out a bit why she's such a jerk. Because uh, she's yeah. supposed to be this incredible blue blood. Um, but anyway, they they try to get to the bottom of this. How did this stupid spell that's out of a book that Letitia got from Boffo's uh, work? Well, it turns out it worked because she did it in the library in the house, which is full of books, including a copy 
of the book, The Bonfire of the Witches, which is the story mm. of the cunning man <laughs> that one of his followers yeah. from centuries later wrote down, which um, Esk has mentioned in her story about him. They figure out that what's happened is she's done this spell. It's not a real spell. It wouldn't work under normal circumstances, but she's done just enough magic that while the cunning man had already woken up and was hoping to find her, this basically pointed him right at her. And this is why he was able to find her even when she was in the unreal estate. There's been this magical connection created between the two of them. So he always kind of vaguely knows where she is and is able to come after her. Um, and Tiffany's kind of pissed about, <laughs> off about this, calls her a stupid woman. Fair. I mean, fair enough, but she couldn't have known. Um, but no. she's dabbling about with magic. That's not safe. I mean, I loved that the, you know, the fatal step was that she wrote witch on her badly carved yeah. thing in pencil. It's like the power of a word. She wrote witch, and so he knew that Tiffany was a witch. Mm. Like, did you guys spend this whole time waiting for Letitia's double cross? Because I did. No, actually, I, I no. didn't do that. As they flew off without telling anyone where they were going, I kept thinking, is Letitia going to, you know, peel her face off at some point and be like, oh, now I've trapped you. No, I was on board as soon as she, like, I feel like she'd peel her face off, like, when she, like, revealed herself to actually be like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do this stuff. So I I was on board with her being being okay, actually. I think for me it was the story where she'd, like, given the pumpkin to the headless ghost so it didn't feel like it was lost and um, given a teddy bear to the other scary ghost. And I'm like, no, no, she's good. She's all right. We can, no, we can that was her. when I began to turn. Yeah, I turned around at that point. I think yeah. before that, I was just, I was sort of waiting for, you know, her speech when she went, how stupid do you think I am? Do you mm. really think that I X, Y, Z? But, and I think the other thing she said that made me sort of realize, oh, no, 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 wait, I can trust you is she said something about watercolors, you know, she said, oh, I can't yeah, even no, use okay. a decent medium, you know, and can't remember what it was. She wanted oil paints or something, but I thought, oh, okay. Yeah. This is your signal that you're great. Yeah. Yeah. And a good match for Roland as well. Yes. Which is not what we're all about, but yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think she also redeems herself by being smart as well. Cause at the end of this scene or, the- or this chapter, Tiffany's like trying to explain that, Oh, look, I think the book was like a portal for him to get into the world from wherever he normally is. And she's like, Oh yeah. Like in that book about portals that's in the library, I'll give it to you as a present as part of saying sorry. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, you're great. <laughs> yes. I like you and you've read this book. <laughs> yep. Um, and that, and that's kind of where some of the knowledge later on comes from where he's, I mean, I think the, one of the things in horror, and there's a strong horror element to this book, but, um, usually a good horror monster has some pretty clear rules about what the dangers are, like what you need to do to avoid it, what summons it, where it comes from. And I feel like there's a little bit of a trick missed with the cunning man. Cause I think Pratchett tries to make him do a few too many things. Cause like at this point in the next chapter, he establishes that like, yeah, he has, to, he can come through a window, but anything can be a window. He's like, he's coming out of the tapestry. And I'm like, he's not done anything like this in the rest of the book and doesn't for the rest of the book after this either. This is weird. So I felt that was a, a maybe a bit of a misstep or at least a weird choice to make. But the tapestry scene was pretty cool where she's like goes for a rest near the fire and looking at the tapestries in the castle. Yeah. Uh, and he's like walking amongst the tapestries, but you can see the tapestry behind his face because of the holes in his eyes. <laughs> that was kind yeah. of really creepy. But it reminded me of a lot of those, you know, Stephen Moffat authored Doctor Who villains like, you know, the Weeping Angels or the Vashnarada, the ones that live in the shadows and stuff like that. I was like, yeah, needed a bit more concrete rule. But anyway, when the tapestry thing happens- that's when uh, Esk does the wandering now thing where she basically takes mm-hmm. Tiffany out of time and space to have a quick talk and say, listen, 
<laughs> you're in trouble here. Although I don't, the first time she does that, what is it that, that Esk really tells her? Like, what is the, cause that, she doesn't say a lot in that scene. I think she kind of says, you need to have a plan. Like, you need to get your shit together. And I guess the main thing is the warning that if you don't do it, what's going to happen is he can possess you. Because he can possess a body yeah. and, like, there's no coming back from his kind of possession. Like, he basically destroys whatever's inside. But he, if he possesses you, he'll have access to all your witchcraft and he can do a lot of harm. So, the other witches will have to band up and stop you. And she's like, you mean they're going to kill me? And, and Esk is like, they might have to. So, don't make him do it. Um, make sure you defeat him. The, the stakes are pretty big for you. And this is where I think that stuff in the blurb where they talk about, uh, you know, if she falls, the chalk falls with her. That's where that comes from is this idea that if he gets access to her power, he's going to destroy the whole place. Like he'll wreck everything. So I think that's the main thing that she says to him. I've kind of answered my own question there. How rude. Sorry. <laughs> She's here for the stakes. <laughs> yes. But then uh, Tiffany gets put back and threatens to burn the tapestry and the man retreats. And this is where she goes, oh, you don't like fire, which totally gels with his mm. origin story. Uh, he was burned. Sure. That's what gave him this power. So he does not like fire. And the little poem that they keep saying throughout this book for some reason about the hair and the fire. But yeah, Oh, yeah. Well, we, which we haven't mentioned, but she's seen many, many little omens. Like there's the bit where she's alone in the woods and she thinks someone's watching her, but she doesn't see that. There's a few times where she sees what she thinks is like the shape of maybe a, a woman dressed in black. And there's also many times where she sees this omen of the um, burning hair or hair jumping into fire. And one point where she and Amber are staying in her house and she wakes up in the middle of the night and just sees this whole vision of them being on fire, but not in like a, oh my God, we're burning to death kind of way, just in a helpful magical fire kind of way. So there's all these, she sees a lot of these visions that don't make much sense to her at the time, but kind of keep pointing out to her maybe what needs to happen at the end of the book. Also, she blurted out in a chat with Roland, I will marry you. And it's in the <laughs> italics and the weird. She's like, where does that come from? Oh, my goodness. And it's just this awkward, uncomfortable moment. But then actually later on, turned out to be literally true. It just depends where you put the inflection. <laughs> yeah. I I did see where that was going, to be honest. I was like, I think I know what this means, which I did not with many other things in the book. So I felt good about that one. <laughs> <laughs> so all this is going on. She also tells Preston the truth which is that, yeah, hmm. there's this thing coming for me and it can possess people. And so he immediately goes, hmm, okay, well, we need a shibboleth. And this is one of a couple of times in the book <laughs> where uh, right at the start, this is I've talked about this in Pratchett before, he often uses stuff from our world to describe the fantasy world that he's talking about. And most yeah. of the time it makes sense. It's the narrator talking. Like right at the start of the book, he says, uh, Tiffany didn't know what a minefield was, but if she did, she'd find the concept very familiar. But here- yeah. He says shibboleth, and I'm like, that has a very specific origin that does not exist on the Discworld. I did notice that. And also, the Feagles call someone a Cromwell, and I'm like, that is- what is happening there? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I feel like they could exist in different- like That's true. Like, Feagles could exist yeah. in multiple worlds and have a shared memory across them, so that I can buy. Um, that That is true. No, that makes sense. And also, I think, you know, the Omnian religion is so similar to some of our- you know, round world religions. I'm sure the word shibboleth could come from one of their books. And we know, we find out Preston did train as a priest for a while. So if anyone's going to pick the word up from yeah. a holy book, it would be him. But it did stand out for me for a bit. It's one of those things where you can rationalize it, but in the moment, it just feels a bit out of place and weird. At least that's how it felt to me. Mm. But yeah, she, she confides in him and he's immediately like, okay, yep, I accept that. 
We love we love Preston oh, t-shirts. That and the bit where they're talking about turning someone into something, and she's like, "It's actually very difficult." And he says, "Yeah, I expect it would be." I mean, there's all, and he just spouts <laughs> out this like theory of why it would be difficult that makes perfect yeah. sense. I'm like, "Oh, buddy, you're a big nerd. Yeah, I love the, you." <laughs> cockroaches and buckets, the best. Oh, that was great. Yeah. We're on the final run now in plot mm. terms because- um, It's heating up. We find out back mm. in Angmorepork. Yes, it is. Uh, Mrs. Proust is summoned to the prison because they're like, something weird's happened and we think we need your help. And they call her because her dad, as she established earlier, was a hangman. She's the witch who deals with all the people at the Tanti, the prison, which is why she knows so much about it and talks about it at length. And they've called her because one of the inmates in the secure wing for really horrible, violent criminals- who all keep canaries, which is clearly a Birdman of Alcatraz reference, which is a whole other thing mm-hmm. we could unpack. But Birdman of the Tanty. Well, yeah. But one of them's escaped by pulling the bars out of his window with superhuman strength and jumping out the window and not dying. And before he went, although we don't find this out until a little bit later in the book, he killed his canary, which is something they never do there. Because even if you think they're putting it on, they look after these birds as a way of trying to, you know, gain sympathy or whatever. And the possessed body, Macintosh- is running towards the chalk. And he also doesn't take too long to get there. But he's got an excuse, which is that he's, you know- He's being possessed by- He's being pushed past. Yeah, his body's being burned up by this experience. So Yeah, Mm. yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's a couple of little scenes of that, which are good horror movie stuff. Yeah. Uh, But he's on the way. And so Mrs. Proust grabs a couple of other witches so that she can use their broom, and they all go together to the castle where the funeral is starting and a whole bunch of people have arrived, including uh, the king and queen of Lanka- Amber and her man, William, and her parents are there. Um, and her boy, William. Her boy, yes. Well, her boy, William, yes. They're yeah. 13. And the witches are there, Granny and Nanny. And Granny mm-hmm. takes very much a backseat in this book. She does not say or do much, but she doesn't need to, to have an impact. But this yeah. is Nanny's time to shine. And I, I think, as you know, listener, <laughs> if you listen to our podcast, big Nanny Og <laughs> fan here. And anytime she gets to be the star of the show, I love it. And she is the star of the show at the funeral. Like, after the proper part of the funeral, everybody knows Letitia and Roland are getting married the next day. So, she starts to get everyone in the right mood by getting to sing one of the old Baron's favourite songs and basically turns the whole funeral into a wake, which sets the scene for both a stag night and a Hindu and also, you know, people getting drunk and being ready to have a proper party the next day. And Tiffany is in awe of Nanny's ability to do this. And the key line is just... A person first and a witch second, which I thought was just yeah. nanny to a tea. Yeah, this is, this is the bookend with the Mrs. Petty scene. This is yeah. what Tiffany realises in that moment she should have been cultivating. That when she bowls over Mrs. Petty, she realises that she's lacking something and this is when she gets to watch and see what it is. Yeah. And, mm. you know, you, you know that this is going to be one of the cornerstones of future Tiffany. Is yeah. this moment for sure, assuming she survives what comes next? Well, yes, because now she knows yeah. the cunning man has possessed a body and is on the way. And not just any body, the body of a horrible, vicious murderer who has knives, apparently. We don't know that where he got them from, but he's got knives now. But he wasn't scary enough. Well, I, I presume that means, without us going into any detail or hearing about it in the book, that there's a string of murders along the path from Ankh-Morpork to the Chalk, where this horrendous body has just done its thing as it's being pushed by the demon inside. Let's not think about that. That's grisly. Um, But anyway, it's on its way. That means it's dangerous to everyone now, not just witches. She's got to do something about it. The witches all give her a bit of advice here and there, but she's really got to figure it out for herself is the main thing they tell her. Like, you're on your own. 
Seems a bit mean, but that's how it is. So Tiffany kind of thinks, well, what have I got? I've got pride, fear, trust, and fire. This is a great scene where she goes in the crypt and thinks about well, what weapons have I got at my disposal. And uh, apparently Roland has gone missing, though. This is much later in the night now after all the revels, probably <laughs> almost the next morning. Roland has gone missing because like, they took him out on a stag do and he didn't come home. He's like, well, I've got to find him as well. She makes the Feagles promise not to help, which is a big deal. But Preston will not take no for an answer in this instance. It's like, no, it's my duty. I'm basically the only watchman on duty. Everyone else is drunk or they've left. I've got to protect you. I'm coming with you to help. And also, I've got to find the Baron. Like, that's also my job. So she says, okay, sure. And they fly out on a broomstick to a pigsty. And it happens to be on the hill above the very last field that hasn't been burned yet when they're burning all the remains of the harvest which they call the king field and they find roland who sure enough yes is in the pigsty missing his clothes and at this point <laughs> yeah so i was gonna make a barren joke like barren of his clothes, but it just doesn't grammatically make <laughs> it's there somewhere i'm sure it's there yeah uh, we're just d- digging the muck for it uh, yeah, uh-huh. but uh, they see that Macintosh is nearly upon them. They can see him in the distance running towards him, and she hears the voice of the cunning man in her head saying, I'm going to get you, and all four of you are in trouble. She's like, four of us? What? And she looks around and realizes Letitia is also running out here because she's trying to find Roland. So she sends Preston off and says, you got to go and do this thing for me. I can probably do this by myself, but actually, if you help me, it'll be a bit easier. So whispers her plan in classic, like, don't tell the audience what's happening. Go and do the thing. So he yeah. goes off to do something. She grabs Letitia and Roland's hands and says, we've got to run. And they start running away from the cunning man. And what happens is basically she runs towards the edge of the field. The voice is in her head. It's getting closer. Um, and then the stubbies are set on fire in this last field and they run towards the flames. And the cunning man's like, you think you got a trap for me? I'm not going to run into any flames. But they don't stop. They keep going and they leap through the flames, just like the hare, which runs in the flames and mm-hmm. doesn't get burned. But she also, in order to protect the three of them, needs to use some magic because, you know, she can redirect the heat, but they can't. So she needs to protect them somehow. And in order to get the magical power to do that, she marries them by reciting a little rhyme about being married as you jump over a fire, um, where she says, mm. what is it? Jump, whore, leap, knave. And we'll come back to that because there's a question from a listener about yeah. it. Uh, but it does come a bit out of it. nowhere. Question from me about it, but yeah, fair yeah, enough. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to it. But she marries them in that way, and that sort of it's a, it's a magical space. It gives her that power. They pass through the fire. The cunning man's like, I'm not going to run into it. What do you think? I'm an idiot. But what he doesn't realize is that the fire burns very quickly across the field when you're burning the stubbies, and so the fire is coming for him, and it comes from all directions. Like it fills the whole field until it burns up, and so he's trapped in there and gets burned to death. Basically, the body that he's inhabited. And the last thing that happens with him is Tiffany goes up to him to make sure he's dead and picks up a bit of flint. This was so cool. She always gets those badass moments, but she picks up a bit of flint and holds it in her hand and just siphons the heat of the fire into it to melt it and kind of by doing so burns the last part of him out of her mind and out of existence. Yeah, it's just, oh, it's cool. Cinematic. Um, yeah. But then they have to have a conversation about what just happened with Letitia and Roland, in which Letitia is also like, excuse me, what did you call me when we were jumping through the fire? Uh, <laughs> really hangs a lampshade yeah. on it, Pratchett, at that point. But this is where we get into the denouement. This is the aftermath. Everything's great and everyone's nice and it's fine. Yeah, they've survived. They've yeah. got to go back to the castle and get married properly because it's now the next day. Um, that happens. They retrieve the money and um, a special satchel with a drawing that the Baron made that she he told uh, Tiffany about. 
which the nurse had stolen. Um, and what's wrong with her? Oh, she's just awful. <laughs> The worst. The worst. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think they say she probably thought it was deeds or something. Yeah, they thought she like wanted she it. Probably because it was in the important money. box. That's right. Yeah, because it was in the same chest with the money. Right. And it was in like a leather folder. Yeah. They tip the money out on the table and presumably by this time it's been converted into actual more pork dollars because there's this whole thing where it's $15, but it's 15 old proper gold coin dollars, which means mm. that it's worth $5,000 in more pork money. And they tip it out and there's quite a lot of it left. She hasn't spent that much. And there's this sort of expectant moment. And then Tiffany says, okay, here's what's going to happen. I want you to keep it, but I have some requests. First of all, you're going to give Amber a dowry, which is going to be enough to send William to become a proper apprentice tailor because he's really talented mm-hmm. tailor, but he can't afford to be uh, apprenticed. Mm. Number two, you're going to set up a school. We need a proper school because all we have is these wandering teachers and none of the kids really learn anything or if they're really good at something, they don't get to actually do that. And that's really a detriment to our community. And the guy who should run the school for the first year is Preston, who shouldn't be a guard. No, it's everything. And at the end of that year, you're going to pay him enough for that year's work that he can go to Ankh-Morpork and be a doctor because we've discovered that that's also a thing he wants to do. Uh, and they're like, okay. And he's like, and I got one more thing. You don't need any money for this, but I want you to officially give the land at the top of the chalk where the Fiegel Mound is, to the Fiegels. And that is going to create an ongoing connection between our peoples and make everything better. And everyone's like, hooray! And there's this bit of the book where the Fiegels hear this and it just has Crivens written in huge letters. It was very triumphant. But in like round. Yeah, it was a real- I mean, it feels like a, a quite a traditional way to end a book. We've dealt with the problem and now we're going to have- all these rewards, but I'm going to give them to other people. Yeah. But it was so satisfying. I didn't care. Like, Nope. Totally happy about it. The witch's books are always so much about stories. Yeah. It was the best. And then Escarina stops time again and says, look, uh, there's one more thing I want to tell you. But actually, no, I don't want to tell you. Someone else wants to tell you. And she meets the mysterious shadowy figure who's been helping her all along. Now, I, this was cool, but I don't know about you, but I saw, also felt it was a bit underwhelming because I was like, have you been helping all along or have you just been mysteriously hanging around like a bad smell? We've already got a bad smell in the book. We don't need another one. But I assume, and, and this was me sort of trying to piece it together, but is the is the deal, is the idea that all of the time she's seen the burning hair and the fire um, and, and we know that there's one concrete bit of help that this person gives, which is to fan the wind to make sure that the fire burned into Macintosh with the cunning man in him. But is that is that how she helped? Because we find out. Sorry, I'm bearing the lead here. This is Tiffany from the future, who, with Escarina's mm-hmm. help, has come back in time to help herself because she's not allowed to get help from anyone else. So she's literally helped herself, mm-hmm. which is cute. But theme-wise, it's strange. Yeah, like I like it because I love a time travel thing, and I, lo- mm. I, I enjoy a paradox. But theme-wise, the whole thing is like you need community. You shouldn't be doing it all yourself, and then like, but actually, also you've been helping yourself the whole time. <laughs> it it feels a bit weird to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there would have been a degree of satisfaction if, in the end, because you know, like as you said at the start, Ben, you know, we never see Granny Weatherwax go it alone. She occasionally tries to, and it's never the, her best idea. You know, usually Nanny Og or someone will catch up with her and say, why are you going it alone? And she'll accept the help. So, yeah, it feels like there would have been a degree of satisfaction if we, I don't know, whether it was playing up more Preston's role in it 
or suddenly, you know, everyone shows up from the castle and they all do a thing with the flames or, you know. She sends a letter to Petulia Gristle who turns up like, I would love Petulia. Right. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, you know, can we say why why long, tall, short, fat Sally and not Petulia? Why not Anagramma? Yeah. Why not Tiffany's parents? Yeah. You know, they yeah. vanish. I mean, I guess she does have Preston's help yeah. a bit at the end there. She does. But for that to have landed completely, I feel like it needed to be bigger. Like Liz says, the whole thing has been about learning to accept help. And that's sort of like the community push. And then there's the whole witch's angle where it's like, but you can't get any help. You have to show that you're a witch who can stand on her own. And there's that real yeah. theme about that. We're just so- here to kill you if you fail. Yeah. Yeah. We're definitely not here. As Nanny Ogg says, like, almost immediately when they meet at the at the funeral, she's like, we're not here about the cunning man business. And they're like, oh, so you know who the cunning man is as well. You know all about it. But apparently no one knows why people hate witches every 200 years. Real weird. But it was it was nice, though. And it's nice to have that sort of vision of Tiffany's future. And again, you know, knowing that Pratchett thought this was the last book, it makes sense that he wanted to put this in and go, and it's okay, it works out for her. Like, she does end up wearing Midnight and becoming a great witch that everybody respects. Yeah. Yeah. I like it as a scene, but I don't love it as part of the overall story. Yeah, fair enough. And if you asked me if I could cut it out, I wouldn't because I like it too much anyway. I'd I'd rather have that slight jarring and keep it. Yeah. It does have a feeling, and some of the other Discworld books and some of other books feel a bit like this as well, that he's got, like, four ideas for a book and he's just gone, but they're all gone in this book. <laughs> and you're like, you could have yeah. taken one of these or even two of these out and it would still be a great book. But they're all great bits, you know, you don't want them not to be there. This, Yeah, you we'll know, I think he, okay. he gets away with it in a way that other authors never would. Because, yeah. you know, like, uh, you know, as you said earlier, you can often see the, the trail that has come about from, I know my destination, but I don't know my route and I'm going mm. to, you know, sort of meander my way towards it. But his digressions are so utterly charming and full of universal <laughs> truth that you're like, yeah, I will go and see the world's biggest ball of string with you on our road trip. Yeah. <laughs> you want to go to that, that weird diner by the side of the road that, that claims it has the world's best, you know, mac and cheese. Let's go. Like, yeah. you will happily wander off with him constantly because he rewards you every single time. Whereas I think any other author who tries to do that, you're like, what? wait, why, why are we doing this bit? This doesn't feel like it's getting us closer to where we want to go. So, yeah. you know, even when he's writing four books at once, even when he is taking you to see the world's biggest ball of string, he's still so much better than everyone else. But <laughs> yeah, it's sickening. You just it? don't care. Oh, my <laughs> God. The yes. worst. Uh, but also the best. Yes. I think I think in this book it weirdly sticks out a bit more, I think just because some of the themes of some of those different storylines seem a bit Clash more at odds with each other than normal. Yeah. yeah I think that's what it is. Yeah. But it all works out okay in the end. And I, I still really love this book. Don't get me wrong. But mm. uh, and we and there's still an epilogue because um Tiffany goes back from talking to herself. She asks a question of herself and doesn't get an answer. Uh, she gets halfway through the question where she's like, um, do I ever and and the uh, herself just goes, listen and then doesn't say anything else. And then we cut to a year later at the next scouring fair. When Tiffany is definitely 17, yeah. or nearly 17, actually. So, she's 16 now, but nearly 17. Um, and we see what's happened to everyone else. So, Amber and William are married. William is now an, a, a tailor's apprentice and has made this amazing masterwork dress as a gift for Tiffany, which is, I think, is is midnight coloured. I think that's the, the sort of thing that we're told about that. The implication, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so, that's great. Um, and, and that seems nice. 
and Preston surprises her with some flowers. So we know where this is going. And it's like, oh, this is nice. Uh, and he's been accepted as an apprentice. He's just trained up his replacement at the school. At the civil school? Yeah, well, he's going to the- Lady Civil School. Lady Civil Free Hospital, yeah. He's like, I don't want to leave you, though. And she's like, it's not that far by broomstick. Uh, like, just papering over the incredibly fast journey from earlier in the book there. <laughs> Was it the portal book? Is that like- <laughs> Yeah. He gives her a present, which is a golden necklace of a hair that Tiffany saw her future self wearing. So you're like, oh, well, this works out then, doesn't it? And that's, it is quite lovely. It's a nice end, particularly when yeah. he asks her in the way that they've had this conversation about what the sound of various concepts or words are. He says, what's the sound of love? And she says, listen. Listen. Oh, beautiful. That was great. No notes. <laughs> no notes. What a killer last line. <laughs> really, mm. really quite lovely. Yeah. I mean, there's then there's a fecal glossary, which actually was missing. There was a word the fecals used that I didn't know, and it wasn't in the glossary, which was the word, um, I guess you pronounce it cess, C-E-S-S, which it turns out is an old kind of Celtic and old English word for luck, uh, but also means a tax <laughs> or a levy. So when I looked it up and I saw the first <laughs> explanation, I'm like, that doesn't sound right. But that's I Shall Wear Midnight. We should get into the questions. But just before we do that, are there any bits that we want to mention, like favorite bits or quotes or or anything we haven't talked about that we want to make sure we mention before we get to the questions? I think I've brought mine all up as I've gone along. Like I've sort of pulled us into alleyways of of all the different (laughs) things I want to talk about. So I'm I'm good. I had one quote that I wrote down. Uh, it's not a direct quote, but it's after she has laid out the Baron. Uh, she decides to stop to think. I can't remember if it's Tiffany or the narrator, but she says something about people rarely stop to think. They just keep moving. It's a good idea to make sure you're not moving the wrong way. And I just thought that was, I mean, apart from, you know, kind of being one of the main themes of the book, perhaps it just hit me between the eyes because I read it on a particular day where I was like, you know, <laughs> something there for me. I might slow down for a moment. I hear. There's still quite a lot of good gags in here and little puns and things. Like there's like uh, one of them's like it's so nonplussed he was nearly minus is in there. Um, <laughs> yes, so good. There's a great bit of wit between the Duchess and Tiffany where the Duchess says, don't you dare turn me into some sort of terrible creature. And she says, oh, I don't think I need to, madam. You're doing a very good job of doing it yourself. Just some good yeah. stuff like that. But I think my favourite one, which I'll just quickly get out there as a line, is when the Feagles are smashing up the king's head. Tiffany says, their hearts are in the right place. And Mrs. Proust says, I don't doubt it, but their asses are on a pile of broken glass, <laughs> which <laughs> I really, I really enjoyed. And I will just throw it because I think we'll have a question about this, but we didn't mention the idea of spill words, which is a great witchy concept that feels right at home <gasps> in the Tiffany Aching book, which Mrs. Proust describes yes. as the words you almost but don't say. And as a witch, she can hear them as clearly as if you did say them. Although she does make the distinction that not saying them is important. So, Mm. she doesn't treat Tiffany awfully, even though she thinks a few spill words about her son when she's trying to set her up with her son. (laughs) Uh, Which we totally skipped as well. There's just so many little moments like that. Uh, But we should get into some questions. Yeah, we got so many great questions. We won't be able to get to all of them, unfortunately, but we're trying to bring you across sections. So let's start with one from Dashwood Sister via Instagram. Um, so the second part of the question was, is there anything you're hoping to see from Tiffany's character going into the Shepherd's Crown? I mean, I, it's interesting. Somebody else did mention they felt this felt very final. And as I say, you know, Pratchett seemed to consider this would be the last book. So I feel like this makes such a good ending. I don't know where it's going to go. I hope she has an adventure where she has some witch friends. 
I hope Patrulia Gristle shows up. That's my probably my biggest wish. But also that, you know, maybe Amber and Letitia, if they are in the book, I hope they're all friends. I hope they help each other out. She's not alone anymore. I think that'd be my big wish. Mm. And of course, yeah. that she and Preston are getting along famously. But yes. I don't think I've shipped a couple as much as those two in any Pratchett book, <laughs> just to just to put that out there. They're so good oh, together. I love it. They're so mm. good. Yeah, I'd, I'd I want to see her more integrated. Not that she won't have, you know, a problem because a book without a problem is just a nice anecdote, but <laughs> I, I want to see, I want a different problem. So I want her to have Preston. I want her to have witches around her. I want her to be more healthily integrated into her community so that, mm. you know, she comes from this place of, of more power to, I want her to have people to lean on. I hope that's where she begins her final book. Yeah, and also her apprenticeship was like going to university and you do make lifelong friends because it's the first time there's enough people around you of your own age that you can choose. You know, it's not just about Mm -hmm. who's in your class at school. It's like, oh, there's this huge amount of people and I like that person, I like that person. And it's not quite like that for her. It's still a smaller number of people, but compared to the people she has to hang out with in the chalk, you know, I think I I want her and Petulia to be lifelong friends, (laughs) I guess is really all I'm saying (laughs) because I love Petulia Mm, Gristle so much. So much. And all she gets is like a couple of brief mentions about how she knows how to do pig boring, which is where you bore a pig to sleep and it's a much more humane way of killing them than anything else. <laughs> hmm. Yes, which someone else did ask about, but we won't go there. We we haven't got time. All right. Our next question comes from Molokov via Discord. What are your feelings on the poem used during the wedding ceremony? The whole leap knave, jump whore thing never really sat right with me, given the modern usage of the word. I'm right there with you on that. Yep. Strong agree. Don't understand why it had to be in it. Could have made up his own poem. It could be archaic. Clearly understood that it was problematic because he goes to the trouble to explain why it's okay. No. It's a hard no for me. Yeah. I I hate that the devil's advocate is the one man on this podcast. Uh, I just want to put that out there before I talk. Mm-hmm. I kind of see where he's coming from. I get that he wants to use a real bit of folklore because he often does want to put that in. It makes it feel more genuine. I think he is trying to have his cake and eat it too a bit because he puts it in there without any warning and it is a shock. And then he has the characters Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, like I said earlier, hang a lampshade on it and kind of go, why did you say that? I don't think that the modern word has that different a meaning to the historical one. I think maybe we treat it as a worse insult now. So I guess I'd agree that that makes it feel worse. But it is it is a rude shock when it comes up. Right, and it felt like his editor said to him, well, you can't just put that in a book for younger readers. You've got to do something about it yeah. if you want to keep it. And so he chose to do something about it. I mean, you know what? Like, I was about to say, who am I to say? But you know what? I'm a person on a podcast discussing his book to say, I guess. You're so, a professional author who yeah. knows a lot about writing and writing for mm. the same kind of age group. So I feel like you are the perfect person. I don't know why it's necessary, because is it just to show it's an archaic ritual from a time different to theirs or like, why is it necessary? What does it add? Part of me thinks that one of the reasons for including it is that part of that ritual and the reason for that language is it's a marker of becoming an adult. And that is not a word that you would use for children. It sort of marks that now Roland and Letitia are adults. They're married, they're adults in the eyes of the land. Like I think there's some angle there. I'm not saying that justifies it necessarily, but also we know that Pratchett, once he had in his head, I'm going to put this word in and I think it's important that kids read this word and then they understand what it means and why it's there. I don't think he was easily dissuaded. I mean, he had that fight over the N-word in one of the Johnny books with an editor who just didn't want him to put it in. He's like, 
it's set in the 40s. I'm going to use the word that they would use to call this kid, and then the kids are going to have to deal with it. Oddly, that feels more in place and it makes more sense than this inclusion, even though that's probably a higher impact in a lot of ways. But it makes more contextual sense. And this makes sense in the sense that it's the rhyme, but he's creating the fictional world. He could have, like you said, Amy, he could have made up a he new rhyme. He could create any rhyme. I could sit here and brainstorm five for you on the spot. He could do a cool thing about the chalk. You know, Tiffany's name means, you know, land over sea. He could do a thing about, you know, the land and the sea coming together to form a home. And that's, a, you know, turn that into a rhyme. He could do a thing about, you know, sparks flying up and, you know, there's fire becoming one with the sky and that's, you know, like. Even the giant and the horse, just, something to do with that. like Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For a man who wrote about the Guild of Seamstresses for so long. Yeah. It feels like a, a new direction. Yeah, <laughs> I guess, uh, <laughs> I guess, um, I guess there's also the thing where he wanted magic words to go with the magic moment. Like that's to sanctify the thing. And if he wanted to use words that weren't from a real world source, maybe he felt like he would have had to spend too much time justifying it. But then he spends all this time justifying it after the fact <laughs> using the words that he did. Well, and yeah. also, I mean, I'm fairly well read and I'm not familiar with this as being something that comes from a real world source. I have heard it before. Mm. I will say. I've definitely heard it before. Do you reckon you would have when you were 14, though? No. Because that's who he's allegedly writing this for. Maybe. I don't know. That's a good question. I guess follow-up question, would you consider yourself to have been the average 14-year-old? No. (laughs) Follow-up I think at 14, no. At 16 or 17, probably. I I definitely read about this when I was young, but I don't know when exactly. But I think that's a good segue into another question that we have. Sure. All right. The next question comes from Steve Lay via Twitter. Other than the chapter breaks, what makes this a book for quite young readers, as the list of Terry's publications at the start of the book points out twice? Like Nation, this book deals with concepts that would go beyond what I would expect a 9 to 12-year-old to comprehend without difficulty, chapter 2 in particular. Yeah, and this is something, um, you know, in, in the earlier editions of the books, they say for younger readers. In the current editions, they say for young adults, which is an interesting distinction. And I think that might be because they didn't really have that as a category or at least publishers didn't use it so much back when some of these books were first being written. But now, of course, it's a huge category for books. Yeah, I could. I mean, this is my area of academic interest. Yeah, you've written for both of these age groups, right? Right, but I'm also doing my PhD on YA literature, so I could <laughs> give you a, a long discourse on on the evolution of, of YA. It probably would have been starting to be used in, in 2010 when this was happening, but these days you can say YA and even people who don't read YA or, or know a YA still more or less know what you mean. It was more of an emerging category, I think, in 2010. But, I mean, there's also, you know, a 9 to 12-year-old is middle grade. Mm. You know, YA is sort of – well, I asked my one of my editors once, I said, some of my books say 12 plus on the back and some say 14 plus. What causes that distinction in-house? Because I don't have any input on that distinction. Mm. And she said, oh, look – to be honest, the 12-year-olds know the same things as the 14-year-olds, but their parents don't know that they know yet, whereas <laughs> the 14-year-olds, the parents have accepted that they know. So, if you've got something, you know, edgier in there, we'll pop in 14+, plus because the 12s are going to read it anyway, but we won't upset their parents by acting <laughs> like we're the ones who introduced the idea. Yeah. Well, th- from that perspective, who is this book aimed at? If we look at the Tiffany series as a whole, like, I feel like the We Free Men, 9 to 12, no problem. 
and even the second and third books, although she's definitely growing up. It's tricky because she grows up by like two years each book. So there's quite mm. a, there's a bit of a leap in, certainly in the last one and this one. But who is this book aimed at? Ultimately, to me, it is a YA book. The reason that I would say that is, I mean, it's not the age of the protagonist. That's, you know, I think a pretty common misconception. It is because middle grade books are sort of about saving the world and YA books are sort of about saving yourself and defining who you're going to be. You know, YA is the literature of transformation. It's why so many adults read it because we go through these big transformations as teens when we're working out who we are, but you know, there's your first date and then there's your first date after your divorce. There's your first day at school and there's your first day at the school gates picking your kid up and everyone else seems to know each other. You know, we're always remaking ourselves. And this is the book where Tiffany is trying to decide who she is, trying to nail down what kind of witch she's going to be and what kind of person she's going to be and how, like, she is a witch now. But this is not the triumphant culmination. This is like the plane has now left the runway and she has the whole flight ahead and she needs to, I suppose the broomstick has left the ground would be a better <laughs> metaphor, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, she now now needs to decide. So I'm, I'm aware that I, I might have sounded a bit in this episode like I'm picking things apart a bit, whereas I know when I was on such a long time ago for Truckers, it was just me being ecstatic because I think Truckers is flawless. But yeah. I only pull it apart in that way of something that we love. And so we want to mm. pull it open to see how the insides work. Yeah. But mm. I do think that some of the flaws that we've spotted have been caused by an attempt to meet the YA audience where someone, whether it was Terry Pratchett or an editor or someone I don't know, thought they were. Mm. And I think that there were perhaps simplifications that didn't need to happen because, I mean, I can tell you from experience that YA readers will follow you through deeply complex storylines. Yeah. So I think it's YA, and I but I also think that the attempt to make it YA perhaps hamstrung <coughs> it every so often. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think there's an interesting persistence of voice and tone through all the Tiffany books, certainly the first four. I haven't read the last one, even though there are some themes like the uh, the first the We Free Men feels like maybe it's in that it's it's kind of in a weird midpoint between YA and and middle grade. Like, cause it's not really about saving the world, but she does go, it is a portal fantasy. Like she does sort of go to this other world, but the other world is horrible. It's like a, you know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of like a parody in a way or a fractured fairy tale version of a portal fantasy kind of book. But she does save this guy and come home and she finds her brother and comes home. And that's a very personal quest, but there's still elements of adventure and there's still things that you just sort of take for granted that aren't gone into in a lot of detail where it feels a little more on the middle grade scale. Well, it's still sort of outwardly focused, not inwardly focused. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. She doesn't sort of ask big questions about herself. But then the second and third books and this one are increasingly more about that. Yeah. Yeah, particularly the third one. Like, uh, well, actually, both the second one and the third one, you know, with the Hiver and, and the Wintersmith. Yeah. All right. So the next question comes from Rin Bettencourt via Facebook. What is a moment that made you go, I'm an adult? Oh, it's weird because a lot of the big traditional ones are things that now feel out of reach to a lot of us of a certain age group. <laughs> like, I don't feel like I'm going to buy a house anytime soon, so it's not going to be that. Um, well, I have a moment from yesterday that I could bring up. Like, It's not the moment that I felt like I was an adult, but it cemented to me that I am in my 30s, um, <laughs> which was there's a little basket that you can put your pegs in and you can hook that onto your washing line and it's so mm -hmm. convenient and I was so excited about having this, this basket that I can keep pegs in. I was like, oh, I'm very of an age. 
Yeah. It wasn't a breakthrough moment, but it, was, it just, it was a really solidifying moment. Cemented that. Yeah. I mean, I have a really clear memory of moving into my first share house mm. and I went shopping. We didn't have groceries. So I, I went to the supermarket to get some basics and I bought a packet of Tim Tams and I did not grow up with a lot of junk food and I bought it home and I can still picture myself. I can't remember a lot about the layout of that house, but I remember so clearly I'm standing in front of the cupboard. Both the doors are open. I can see, you know, the the food and the plates stacked inside. And with both hands, like I am putting like the crown on a pillow, I put this packet of Tim Tams down there and I think that's mine and I can buy another one anytime <laughs> I like. <laughs> and that... Felt very grown up. That's great. So much more elegant than my version of my first share house junk food moment, which was I went to the supermarket nearby and I was like, I don't know what to get for dinner. And I was like, oh, frozen cheesecake is $4 at the moment. I'm going to go buy a <laughs> Woolworths frozen cheesecake and have that for dinner. And I came back and I ate like more than half of it. And I was like, I feel unwell, but that's okay. I can have cheesecake for dinner if I want to. Soon realized I didn't want to, but the fact that I could... <laughs> was great. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty good. I mean, I remember my when my, my then boyfriend, now husband, moved into his first share house. Um, I remember about two months in, him and his cousin being like, oh, we just don't feel well and our skin's breaking out and we're all sluggish. And I was like, all right, have you heard the good word about vegetables, boys? Because <laughs> you are living off frozen chicken schnitzels and... <laughs> Just man cannot abide by a schnitzel alone. Could we buy some frozen vegetables and put it in the freezer with the schnitzel? And, you know, again, it wasn't super adult, but it was definitely, you know, I'd improved from 17-year-old Amy. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I had those things, but I didn't feel like an adult even when I clocked that, you know? I don't know why. I, I mean, I still don't most days, to be honest. So, no, well, yeah, I'm not sure not. it's coming. It's a new moment. Every so often you have a peg basket, but the rest of the time you feel like an elderly child. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yep. All right. Our next question comes from Sven via Discord, who sent through quite a few. Um, so it was a tough choice to choose one, but we're going to go with, what witch hunting is more to your liking, the cunning man or the witch finder army from Good Omens? Ooh. I mean, to my Define liking. liking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the witch finder army in Good Omens are much funnier <laughs> and they don't kill as many yeah. witches. <laughs> So, I mean, they're equally as wrong about witches as the cunning man is. They kind of come around for fun, good omens, for horror, yeah, the cunning man. Like, they do- Yeah, I find him very compelling. Yeah, he's great. He's great. Really creepy. All right, our next question comes from Angela via Discord. What spill words are you trying not to let out while you are recording? <laughs> I feel like I'm Surely that defeats the purpose out. of having- <laughs> If we say them. <laughs> no, we can say this is a special safe space where we're allowed to say them because we've been asked <laughs> the question. Hmm. Oh, I'd I love mean, to say I have thoughts that don't make it to my lips, but I think I've demonstrated yeah. over the course of the episode. That's not true. Yeah, I'm like overflowing with puns. They just, they I don't hold them back. Don't give a damn. I have plenty of self-critical things I don't say when I'm on the podcast. I'm acutely aware that in my role as the person who is steering the podcast and doing the recap part, that I speak a lot. And I think about that a lot because, not least because someone once reviewed the podcast and said, I wish that guy didn't talk so much. And I, I took that to heart, even though it was like one Rude. review. Rude. That's really mean. Um, well, but but yeah. it's true. You know, like I do speak a lot. And I think- no. 
No, it's it's not. But but, no, but no, I mean, like in a literal sense, I speak a lot. But that's because my role on the podcast requires me to. I hope I don't speak more than is necessary. But I do think about that. Well, should I keep talking about this plot point, or should I shut the hell up and let the guest we have invited talk some more? And Liz is probably trying to make a pun. You know, I make them anyway. Don't worry. Yeah, it can't be stopped, and I love that. <laughs> when when Twitter finally, you know, meets its demise, which may well have happened by the time this episode. <laughs> Who can say? Mm. Only reason that I was really still there, which was for Liz's puns, will, will have oh. know, been taken away from me. But Got to get on Mastodon. I don't understand Mastodon. That's adulting for you, being too old <laughs> to understand Mastodon. But oh, I have two Mastodon accounts and I've never logged on. <laughs> right. Like- you know, but Ben, you talk, you worry about talking too much and then, you know, should I let the guest talk? And then meanwhile, the guest is thinking, have I just waltzed into their podcast and I'm just, you know, holding forth on, you know, that's your job. I think it's quite guest. natural. <laughs> that's the point. Right. But well, it's your job to recap. Doesn't stop either of us, does it? <laughs> that's true. I mean, I'll, if we're going to go deep on this spill words <laughs> thing, I will tell my thing that I don't want to say, which is sometimes, I get quite embarrassed and ashamed that I can't remember things as well from previous books. Like when I was younger and read, I'd remember everything. But now I forget things between books quite a lot. And that's not from lack of deep reading or lack of enthusiasm. But sometimes a character or a reference will come up and I'm like, I know this is something, but I don't know what that is. And I don't know how to find out what that is because I don't even know what book it's referencing. And sometimes I worry that that makes me come across ill informed or or as though I don't care about the thing that we do a whole podcast about. So that's my that's my background thing that I'm always a little bit worried about, that it seems like, I don't know, I haven't done the work, but it's because I'm not retaining in the way that I used to like 10 years ago or whatnot. So, But like the funny version of that is previous question, when it was like this or Good Omens, I'm like, I can't remember the Witchfinder army from Good Omens. Even though I have read the book multiple times, I have seen the TV series, and I was just like, nope, they're completely gone from my mind. But the moment I pick <laughs> up that book, it'll come back. Like You'll just be like, you get a hint of that, and the rest of the story falls into place afterwards without having to read it. It's interesting, but a bit depressing sometimes. Oh, I mean, I think your brain is just, I pray this is true, just getting fuller and fuller and fuller. And, you know, yeah. someone sang like some 90s lyrics at me earlier today, and I like instantly without missing a beat you know provided the rest of it and i was like <laughs> i thought to myself as i did it imagine what else i could have used that storage for that would have been useful but yeah apparently that's not the choice i made <laughs> i feel like everything is archived like it's it's archived but you can bring it back it's like there's somewhere. like a trigger thing that brings it back that, that is that is yeah. partly how brain memory works i think i mean not like a file system in a computer but but i mean i think also like just to reassure you liz that is the way normal brains work on most subjects and it's only weirdos who spend a lot of time making notes and rereading things who instantly recall stuff. Um, but that's part of my job on the podcast, you know, to be the one who who does that. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember everything. That's why I make these ridiculously extensive notes. It's the only way it's- to fix it in my brain. We are yeah. all doing our best is we what are. I'm getting from this. We are all, all we doing can do. our best. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's do our best with the last question, Liz. And it's a fun one. So this one comes from AJ Dean via Twitter. What time of day would you wear? Oh, such a good question. I mean, I I do like the twilight. Depends if we're talking literal or figurative, because there's that great bit at the end of the book we didn't mention where Tiffany spends the evening after everything's been resolved on her broomstick 
flying up into the air to literally wear the midnight, like, around her, like, just bask in the middle of the night as a witch. And then she comes back down in the morning. But then also her older self is wearing midnight in terms of the color, like, really deep, proper black. Oh, it's not really a time of day that's green, which is kind of my favorite color. So that's difficult. Maybe I could go, I could go like to Finland or to Antarctica. And when the northern or southern lights are in the sky, that's the time of day that I want to wear. Uh, that's cheating. I would wear 143. Um, <laughs> no, no hesitation. Um, for various reasons. Um, it used to be the alarm on my my watch all through my schooling years because lunchtime started at one ten and finished at two o'clock. And if your alarm beeped at one forty three, you knew you had seventeen minutes left, which is a good amount of time to sort of still enjoy yourself but also get to class. And so it just sort of became a thing. It's also just a time that you're pretty much guaranteed to be awake. One forty three in the afternoon, you're pretty much guaranteed yeah. to be awake. <laughs> Yeah, fair. Yeah. But even if you're having like a big, if you've had a big night out or you've like, you're sleeping something off, you generally wake up mm-hmm. like 12 or 1 or something. So it's that time in between that you're pretty much definitely going to be awake no matter what's happening in your life or in your sleep schedule. So that's like the moment that people can pretty much always catch you and that you're not too tired or exhausted from the day. So I think color wise, that would probably be a light blue to a light purple. Okay. I love that. I like it. Very specific. Yeah. I do like a dark blue, so I could also do the twilight, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it depends whether I'm going for aesthetics or whether I'm going for, you know, what, what time of day am I? Mm. But, mm. you know, if I'm, if I'm going for aesthetics, I'll, I'll do some kind of cool dawn thing. I'm imagining my dress with a lot of like layers of, you know, cool dawn colors, but, yeah. you know, my happy time is kind of just mid afternoon. On a sunny day, I'm aggressively not a morning person. <laughs> I'll meet you there. Like, <laughs> I, yeah. You'll be right next to Aggressively not a morning person. I do not like waking up ever. Okay. And, and I'm not super functional in the morning. I tried for years to be one of those writers. You know, they're like, I awaken. I do not cloud my mind with thoughts or email. I float to my office. I light the candle. I brew the tea. I write the book. And I tried for a long time because I was like, I see the logic to this now. Just do not like to write. No. Do not like to. Hmm. Sorry. Just write. Go listen to your brain. Look, if left unattended, I will almost without fail sit down to work at 3 p.m. So I guess I'll wear 3 p.m. Yeah. Hmm? It's, it's when I sort of suddenly become conscious and active. Well, I reckon then I will stick with Twilight. Your answers inspired me, both of you. And I think I would go with probably about 10.42 in the evening. Because I'm quite a night owl. I do wake up reasonably early and I'm perfectly functional in the morning, but I do much prefer to be awake later into the night. Well, on that note, we should get to the twilight of this episode. It's been quite a ride. What a book and what a guest. Thank you Mm -hmm. so much for joining us, Amy. It's been wonderful to have you back. Thanks for letting me come back. Oh, we're so glad to have you back. You're up to book 19, I think you mentioned earlier. Yeah, that happened. That's That's a lot of books, 19 books. If you were to pick one that you think Pratchett fans might most enjoy, like there's something in it, it doesn't have to be a similar style or tone or whatever, but if there's something in it that you think Pratchett fans could latch onto and enjoy, which which book of yours do you think that would be? Oh, it's such a good I've been I knew you were gonna ask because I'm a listener and so I've been trying to think about this. 
I think I would probably choose the one that I'm about to release Mm. because there's one of the things I love that Terry Pratchett does, one of the million things I love that he does is he sort of questions tropes and points out a little bit what's going on underneath. And one of the things that I really enjoyed in, in writing the Isles of the Gods was having the characters think and say to each other, they always seem a lot more certain of what they're doing in adventure stories than I am. I am cold and tired and hungry and scared, and I would like an adult to take over, please. Uh, And, you know, that doesn't seem to be an option, but boy, do I want it. Because that's how I feel when I'm in a stressful experience. (laughs) I mean, I guess, you know, that's the answer, right, to when did you know you were an adult was when you had that thought and you thought, oh, no. I am the adult in this situation. I am the adult in this situation. (laughs) No one is coming who can help me. But I liked picking away at that. I liked taking people to a new setting. One of the things that I, when I was growing up reading Pratchett, he was often my first exposure to particular environments. Mm. You know, I, the first time I read Pyramids was the first time I remembered reading something that was sort of explicitly set in a desert. I'm sure it wasn't, but it was the first thing that I remember really being struck by it. Lankra kind of came to life for me in a way that I don't think other places. Yeah had because it was, you know, a lot less bucolic and a lot more real. I like that sense of realness. So I had a lot of fun with Isles, you know, trying to create a sense of a real world. It's very 1920s inspired, which in our world was a time when we would have cars and neon lights alongside apartments with no electricity Mm -hmm. and horse-drawn carriages still in operation. And, you know, the thing that sparked the whole book, which was we still had tall ships sailing cargo in the 1920s, which Mm. I didn't know. Uh, You know, you don't picture them between the two world wars. This time when old and new were really kind of clashing together. And it's like when people tell you that Sherlock Holmes and cowboys were happening at the same time <laughs> and it blows your mind. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so, you know, perhaps that's why I'm kind of, you know, picking up on the themes in, in this book about, you know, is this gender roles shifting? Is this, you know, as we were saying, you know, the future coming to the rural areas? Because that's something I was really wrestling with. So, cool. you know, it's not a comedy book. It's, there's a lot of banter, but it's not. It's not Pratchett funny, but, you know, although we love his humour, that's actually not why we ultimately come. No. We ultimately come for big questions. So, it's one It's one of my big questions books. So, that's Isles of the Gods? The Isles of the Gods. Of the Gods. And when's that out? Uh, that is out May 2nd in Australia. Mm. I am very currently labouring over the sequel. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. So, this is good. We know it's good because it's already got a sequel. <laughs> I'm excited about it. And it's being written. So, that, yeah, we know it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. Right, it's got half a sequel already. Watch this space. It's, it's going to have a whole sequel real soon. Awesome, awesome. A trilogy in one and a half yeah. parts. I love it. I love it. Um, and if people want to find out more about the Isles of the Gods or any of your other work, where's the best place for them to find you and your podcasts and everything else that you do? My website is amykoffman.com, but the best place to sort of stay up to date with everything that I do, you know, free of algorithms deciding to show you things or not show you things is amykoffman.substack.com. I write a monthly letter to readers and I actually love it. It's this thing that I get excited to sit down and work on because I talk a lot about sort of where I'm at and what I'm working on and what I'm thinking about and and so on. Then, yeah, my my podcasts are Amy Kaufman on writing and pub dates. So 
I can only imagine you've had your fill of my voice for now, but if you feel the yen to hear it again, <laughs> that's where you can find no way. it. I'm immediately going to listen to many episodes <laughs> of your writing podcast. Uh, look, thank you once again for joining us. It's been such a wonderful pleasure to have you back. We'll have to not wait five years uh, <laughs> for the next time yeah, we absolutely. see you. Yes, please. And thank you, listener, for listening. As always, of course, you are why we do this. Uh, we hope that you've got plenty of spill words that you want to spill to us. <laughs> But if you do, uh, you can get in touch. If you've got any comments about this episode, get on the social media or send us an email. The hashtag is Pratchett66. And, of course, we'll be back next month when we're not reading a book at all. No. We've decided to go somewhere very different indeed. Um, We will be playing a board game called The Witches. I keep referencing the Auntie Donna board game sketch, but um, it's really going to be like that. So, I promise um, it will not be not- like that. Please. I'm a professional. <laughs> uh, but no, this is, this is one of the other Discworld board games. And I thought this was a really good time to do it because we've now read all of the books about witches that were out at the time the board game was published. So we will be familiar with all the characters that appear. Um, and if you're a subscriber, I'll be putting together a little unboxing video of the pristine, still in the shrink wrap copy of the game that I've got. It's not in print anymore. So this is a bit fancy. I'm excited about this. So you'll get to see that if you're a subscriber. If you want to be a subscriber, you can do that too. Just go to pratchatpodcast.com, get on the support us page, and you can see the ways that you can support us making this podcast. We love it when you do that. We also love it when you do that to any podcast because so many independent podcasts rely on your support to keep them running and make sure that they are freely available because it's a lot of work. I'm pretty sure Ben was accidentally going to say independent just then. Look, one last bit of news. If you'd like to hear some of Liz's puns in person, you can catch her at the upcoming Sci-Fight Comedy Science Debate on April 13th, 2023, just in case you're listening in the future, as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. It's hosted by previous Pratt Chat guest Atlanta Collie, and the topic this time around is Should We Fear AI? Check out the episode notes for a link to get details and book tickets. But that's all from us for now, and so... Until next time, remember, there's no I in Coven. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Amy Kaufman. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton. We're on Twitter, Mastodon, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat66. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.